This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. Because he had so much to gain and had such a material Subliminal Jihad, episode 108. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, we're finally back with our OG series. The first series we ever did. Maybe Mm -hmm. some people thought it was done. But it's really... Probably not going to be done for a while. It probably won't be done for a while. But of course, we are talking about our Contra series. We'll probably at least never declare it done. Never. Um, yeah, yeah. Why would we? Why would Yeah, we? you never know. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really still ongoing. Like, you know, current events could. It is. Like, you know, be the subject of an installment of this. Yeah. There's some people from this generation or maybe they're the second generation that are still kind of dominating international business and politics to this day. And. Mm-hmm like the ripple effect from all of the Contra shit. I think we've seen that in like every chapter that uh, its history still haunts us. This, this shadowy octopus network of financiers, drug traffickers, intelligence operatives, politicos, um, making the world safe for what they call democracy. <laughs> but I think uh, we could find yeah. a lot of other words for it now, looking back mm-hmm. in 2022. So I guess we decided to jump back in, uh, reignite this series with an exploration into something that has come up in a few of the Contra episodes previously. Mm-hmm. And that is the Bank of Credit and Commerce International BCCI, which definitely came up a lot, I know, in Contra 4, Interlock. Yeah, it was definitely one of the big interlocks. Yeah, it was uh, one of the the kind of most significant works by the artist Mark Lombardi were his BCCI drawings. Mm -hmm. One of which was mysteriously damaged in like a flood in his apartment, right? I don't recall, but I vaguely remember what you're what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, and I think he wasn't he working on recreating it when he mysteriously died mm-hmm. right before yeah, that 9/11. Sounds, that sounds familiar. Yeah. 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 But of right. course, uh, the other things too. I think even going back to uh, Contra 1 and Contra 2, we're going to see a lot of like the same 
colorful characters pop up in this narrative, yeah. right? Yeah, I think this is like one of the most like interesting things to me because I didn't really appreciate like the nature and the background of BCCI. I was like really hooked into this one by like the character of Aga Hassan Abadi, who is the sort of founder of BCCI. It's yeah. kind of like a, you know, there's a fair number of like uh, books or uh, articles written about this. You know, it was a big scandal when this bank folded eventually. Um you know, and you know, there's a lot of sort of mystery uh, and mystique around the the figure of Abadie. And yeah, I, you know, I think uh, it's a it's a co- he's a complex uh, individual um, that, yeah, it's interesting to to uh, explore. And the sort of uh, the aspect of BCCI sort of coming out of Pakistan and being like, uh, you know, the the first like big third world like financial uh, institution that could compete with uh you know the uh, the sort of western equivalents uh yeah. it's it's interesting um it, it and it's really an interesting is. like wrinkle in all of this uh, i i have to confess yeah. that i don't think i fully understood like i thought i understood bcci pretty well just because it's it's one of those acronyms that pops up so much in like uh iran contra research and mm-hmm. but it's it's always interesting when you kind of take something it seemed like bcci was so blatantly fraudulent and sus and it eventually did go down in flames and this huge scandal. And it almost is like, well, you could take for granted that everything they said about BCCI is pretty much, yeah, it was super corrupt. And I remember, again, I have to confess, like the the idea that this like random, seemingly random Pakistani guy. Abadi, <laughs> seemingly random. Seemingly yeah. random, you know, was kind of running. It always seemed like, oh, well, he was probably just some minor player to like put a face on it. But it was actually mm-hmm. all these machinations. And, you know, maybe there's an aspect of truth to that but there's really much more to the story if you just look at it from if you focus on the character of abadi and the origins Mm -hmm. of bcci itself in the kind of south asian region in like the 1970s leading up into its most infamous decade in the 80s really in like really this is this was like an islamic bank like this was the beginning in a lot of ways of the whole discourse around like sharia compliant banking and things like that you know that you still hear about today like this what like this was the like an attempt to kind of like rise out of the immiseration that uh, you know, the, uh, like broader sort of Islamic, uh, world had felt itself, uh, to be in, uh, you know, as a result of like the dominance of there is no, uh, native alternative or no Islamic alternative to the Western banking institutions or anything like that. And Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think it's interesting to actually go kind of into the, the history at some point, like of how, like the, uh, uh, the financial institutions and uh, of of Islam, like under colonialism, like had been destroyed, and the immense upheaval that was created, and how this was something that seemed to many people to be like a, a beacon of hope in certain ways. And I think that even though like there were aspects of uh, corruption within BCCI that can be, I think, uh, you know, pinned on its actual management and like its own structure. I do think I do find it persuasive in in certain ways that like this, like because of the hope that this represented to the third world and because of the uh, or even the opportunity that represented to the third world in some ways, uh, you know, I think that it was perceived as a threat in many ways and even like a sort of symbol like it needed to be crushed for symbolic reasons as well. And I think that's why 
in some respects, even though like oh, pretty much every single bank ever, like there was corruption in PCCI, yep. it was targeted and the corruption was inflamed by people whose desire was not just to exploit the bank, you know, for their own shady dealings, but for the ultimate result to be once the bank ceased to be useful for those ends uh, to destroy it. Uh, in a very flashy, it, symbolic way. As a patsy, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like that that's a really interesting angle to it that I feel like does sometimes get lost, is that it was like it, it wasn't just a cutout for nefarious like international interests and stuff. It did have its like own identity. And I feel like nobody believed in that more than Abadi himself, like in the almost messianic mission that he had yeah. to um, uh, to build this like third world banking alternative, you know, and uh, kind of break the old boys club of these like city of London and like American and Western European banks. Um, but it also establishes, and I think we'll we'll get into this like hypothesis or this like, alternative framework for looking at it um it establishes kind of like a pattern of behavior that is very interesting and relevant to the overall sprawling like contra network whereby Mm -hmm. international individuals uh enter into certain relationships with like americans and their allies particularly ones focused on like intelligence op like kind of political intelligence operatives and then are set up to be a kind of patsy and are sort of, um, I guess you could say, control demoed when the time is right. Would that be a fair yeah. uh, way of characterizing I it? I think, yeah, I think one could say uh, that they were in some ways control demoed because, I mean, we, uh, we like our main sources for like reading for this episode where we looked at like three books, really, like uh, False Prophets was the one that you mostly read. That's by Truel, right? Am I uh-huh. right? I uh, think so. Yeah, and uh, I read, uh, I think we both have read uh, this one uh, very idiosyncratic book, uh, which I appreciated in many ways, uh, called uh, From BCCI to ISI, uh, The Saga of Entrapment Continues by a man named Abidullah John. The cover of this book is one of the the best covers of any book (laughs) that we've ever read for the podcast. Like on par with that, uh, I think it was the Goblin Universe that had like the Loch Ness Monster flying through like a grid, like in like an 80s, like Tron type world. Or like Bigfoot, the interdimensional hypothesis. Yeah, that is all. Sasquatch (laughs) is walking out of a portal. (laughs) Yeah, walking out of a portal in a tree. This one has like a kind of a crude Photoshop of like a spider spinning like a web but it has the head of like a bald eagle with like an american flag superimposed over it i mean it's amazing it's a spider something, world yeah it's i mean it's great it's uh, truly a spider world yeah and that's it's definitely basi- gonna be the album art for this episode yeah and then i read another book that i guess uh you didn't get as much of a chance to read which was outlaw bank by uh jonathan Beatty and uh his co-writer gwyn uh someone gwyn i forget who exactly uh Oh, I have to borrow again because my loan expired on archive.org. That's why I'm not able to flip pages Um, in this book. Yeah, so great. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Cargill. Yeah, thank you, Chuck Wendig. Or Chuck Wendig, that's right. Yeah, right. Uh, Jonathan Beatty and S.C. Gwynn. So I don't know what the actual name is there. But yeah, so reading this book, Outlaw Bank, like 
Outlaw Bank is kind of like written in a uh, almost like a thriller, like very narrative format. There's like a lot of dialogue. Actually, the authors are kind of referred to in the third person as kind of like the heroes throughout. So it's a bit weird. But this is like a very influential book about about BCCI anyway. And like their mm. description of Abadie and like his background is pretty interesting. Like, let me see He's if like archive.org yeah. is going to like comply with me in, in this uh, in any way. Well, I just want to mention, I think one of the things that spurred us onto this, and I'm sure we'll touch on it with Abadi, is I think somebody on Twitter edited us like in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, right. Some, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was a like a magazine uh, or like a newspaper article about Abadi where he allegedly described BCCI as like he regarded it as like a living entity or something. Yeah, like uh, I think it's on his Wikipedia. I think it was just a screen cap of Wikipedia that someone added us with that he viewed it as like a God-given entity or something, <laughs> which like, you know, uh, does make like, you know, does seem consistent with, um, you know, his general uh, outlook. Like uh, just to like uh, read some stuff from Outlaw Bank, because this is like, you know, the most kind of lurid description of Avidee that you can get. And it's like full of like, if you thought like that there was like kind of like uh, fuzzy, like, uh, you know, uh, pseudo like, I mean, this is just like straight up like this book is like kind of orientalist, like really like uh, there's a lot of like weird like uh, or just straight up inaccurate like stuff about like if people ever wanted to understand why like I hate the term like mysticism, <laughs> like they, you can find out from like reading some of the stuff written about uh, Aga Hussein Abedi. So this is like just from the introduction of uh, their book. It says, Abedi himself uh, was ascetic. He was both a visionary and a romantic. He was Muslim, but no ordinary one. Though born to the Shiite sect of Islam, he later drifted into the religion of the secretive Sufi sect, <laughs> which claimed a direct and personal relationship with God based on love. Like, oh, how bizarre. Like, a direct relationship with God based on love. Never heard of anything like that before. Uh, It gets worse. By contrast, mainstream Islam was built around fear and submission. The business style he created, the management theory of the bank, was unlike any ever seen before in a large company. He incorporated his Islamic mysticism into the palpable driving force of the bank. Advancement was based on spiritual progress. And Abadie took Islam's emphasis on the good of the family and society ahead of individualism and transmuted it to an intensely democratic theory of management. All would devolve into corruption, and Abadie's mysticism would eventually sound like a hodgepodge of California New Age gobbledygook and Dale Carnegie. Yet it was a powerful original vision, and it constituted the early strength of the bank. You know, it goes on to say he was perhaps the most brilliant pure businessman the developing world has ever produced, uh, which is like kind of like a backhanded uh, insult. First saying that he was like a complete fraud, a weirdo who like, you know, destroy, like uh, built a complete like bank that had nothing to it. But I find that passage interesting because like all the blame eventually like devolves to like Islam somehow. Like that's yeah. what went wrong. <laughs> like it's because of Islam is like based on like fear and submission, or like there is some kind of secretive the, the quote unquote secretive Sufi sect, which is not like a thing. <laughs> like you know, uh, these are not the I, types of things that a responsible international banker believes in, right? Exactly. Well, also like I mean, it's just like poor scholarship in general. Obviously, it's not like a book about Islam, so you don't necessarily expect them to like know these things, but like. 
Sufism isn't really a sect, as we talked about before. Sufism yeah. is like a part of uh, Islam. Both Shia and Sunni Islam uh, have like Sufism as a dimension of, of their practice. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so... You know, uh, a lot of this, because uh, um, uh, False Prophets also kind of gets into a little bit, probably not as Orientalist and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more fair. But there's definitely, they definitely do portray Abadi as like this guru CEO kind of got really a, a little bit ahead of his time because mm-hmm. what it really like what you just read reminds me of like, it's funny how there's like three different Silicon Valley, like mini series out right mm-hmm. now that are all about like a manipulative lying, like guru cult tech CEO that, you know, def- like frauds their way to the top and then has this like huge downfall. And one and of them is about Theranos, right? Yeah, one of them is yeah, about Yeah, I was even going to say that he is similar in certain ways. Like, he could be compared maybe to Sonny Balwani in certain respects, but, like, kind of in reverse, where Sonny Balwani was a Hindu from Pakistan, uh, or for what oh, became Pakistan. Okay. Abedi had the opposite situation where yeah, he I forgot that there was a pa- I forgot he was Pakistani. Um, yeah. Getting in there. Um, hmm, inter- interesting. Not to, not to, like, sus jacket all Pakistanis, but there are going to be a lot of them that pop up in this episode. Yeah, well, uh, technically speaking, Abedi, like, and his family was in what was India, yeah. but then they moved to Pakistan, whereas what happened to Balwani was the opposite, you know, because at the partition, a lot of Hindus moved to india they, and a lot of muslims switched. moved to pakistan exactly um, but yeah i mean you yeah. could even look at it as you could even draw comparisons also of him to elizabeth holmes in that he embraced like he was he he was of a kind of um background that was not dominant in the field that he was going into in elizabeth holmes case even though like her dad was a vp at enron whole nother story she was a woman in tech right mm-hmm. and there was yeah. like she had to fight or she perceived that she had to combat a lot of like latent sexism and stuff. And there's a certain similarity with how Abadi felt like as a Pakistani, as a Muslim from the third world, that he wasn't going to get the same respect that like Anglo-American bankers would get. And he, and he complained about, I mean, that was often, I think not, it wasn't just like a bullshit, like defensive strategy. Like I think there was, uh, during BCCI's kind of tenure. And maybe this is almost like by design why so many certain American forces decided to like get in bed with them is that you could kind of like Muslim coat like whatever was going on and at the end of the day have this guy that like the old blue bloods would go, oh, well, he's a Muslim, you know, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and then and scapegoat them after the fact for all the shady things that you did. Yep. And like really like was prior to the choice to use BCCI for all of these, like, sting operations and all of this, like, drug smuggling, like, that was coordinated by, like, uh, intelligence agencies in the United States. Was BCCI really more corrupt or more fraudulent than most banks? I don't know. Like, it was is that true? Like, I'm not sure if it really was. Oh, like, it certainly wasn't what it was called. That- got busted out at the end of the 80s including i think one where uh one of the bush sons worked i think it was it was either jonathan or neil bush uh worked i think silverado savings and loan which you know i I think that also ties in both ties into it and was going on independently of bcci just like the massive criminality of the banking sector in the fucking 80s was so out of control that it Mm -hmm. is kind of ridiculous to like just point at bcci as this one fount yes. of corruption in an otherwise like very respectable field. Like 
ain't nothing was respectable in the fucking 1980s. Everybody was laundering coke money. Everyone was like doing weird shit to like send money to the Contras or Afghanistan or like secretly sell weapons to Iraq or Iran. You know, like you really see like the satanic frenzy of the international banking of like the Western banking system. And of course, BCCI was a part of it, but yeah. Were they the only part of it? And was it just because these guys were a bunch of air? I mean, it goes into the whole trope about that started with the reversal after like the oil crisis in the seventies. Another thing that's kind of relevant to right now, where I'm, uh, I think we're sitting at $6 a gallon gas right now Mm -hmm. where I live. And there's a lot of talk again about like globe, the global oil markets and things like that. And, you know, I think BCCI like really had its come up after the OPEC oil embargo and the oil crisis in the early seventies. Right. And Mm -hmm. then you had this explosion in revenues to these, uh, middle Eastern countries, these Arab Gulf, uh, states like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, a lot of that money ended up getting like you know basically deposited in BCCI and then made its way yes. around the world and you know it's a very common trope of like oh like the saudi sheiks are going to london and they're dropping like $100,000 every 5 minutes and you know they bring 200 servants with them and all this shit and it's mm-hmm. always kind of treated like Ooh, look at these like Arab Bedouins. Like they're so wacky and they're just coming yeah. over here and they're so And even corrupt. BCCI, like, which wasn't even a bank started. I mean, they did have a lot of sort of faces that they cultivated who were wealthy Arabs and investors who were wealthy Arabs, but like they were often seen as like an like you know, a bank that was run by uh or fronted by uh, you know, these wealthy Arabs. But really, yeah, it's, it originated in Pakistan. But yeah. I mean Reading but some it, of it got yeah. the come up from the UAE, right? Because yeah, the, the contact with um, the who was the print the uh, Farron Farron. Oh no, no, that that was the Saudi Farron. businessman. Yeah, um, oh, Guy Farron. He comes in later. Uh, that Sheikh, guy's a major. Sheikh Zayed. Is that who? Yeah, Sheikh about? Zayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He mm-hmm. was uh, who became the head of Abu Dhabi, where most of the oil in the UAE is, and then uh, basically, I mean, BCCI was established with a lot of upfront money from Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nayhan, which mm-hmm. is the ruling family. And and also the, uh, who is the other, a, pa- a very wealthy Pakistani family also uh, bankrolled the beginning of BCCI. Yeah, I remember reading about them a bit, but I'm not sure. I don't recall who their, their name was. Yeah, I'm not, I don't recall off the top of my head. Yeah, who, I guess, um, you know, because Abadi worked for, a previous bank in Pakistan, but then it was nationalized under Bhutto, right? Mm-hmm. The first yes. Bhutto. Yeah, Zulkifar Bhutto. Yes, uh, who who was really more of like a kind of socialist-leaning uh, kind of uh, politician, I would say. Kind I mean, of. You can safely say. I mean, he wanted to nationalize, <laughs> sort of. wanted like, to nationalize a lot of the industry. I mean, he wasn't like a Marxist, but he he was kind of trending in that direction in the 70s kind of in like a nasserist sort of direction i would say yeah i mean the butos like are super corrupt like zeal Huck, like he's not better but the butos are also like incredibly corrupt like you know family and i don't doubt that yeah like uh i don't know they're yeah, <laughs> like but they were they were really like, like take they were overthrown in a military coup and then hanged by General yeah. Zia, who went on to become Bill Casey's best friend in the 1980s yeah. and set mm-hmm. up this whole uh, 
ISI CIA operation to uh, trip up the Soviets in Afghanistan. So, I mean, I don't know. It sounds like they were like maybe a little better, a little preferable uh, than General Zia. And maybe a lot of people hate uh, Ben Azir Bhutto too. Like, uh, who was assassinated by heavy air quotes Al Qaeda in like yeah. 2007, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure, but I, I almost get, I don't know, I'd have to look in more, but they kind of give me like William Tolbert vibes where like, yes, they're corrupt. Like, yes, they were like making a bunch of money on the side. But again, it goes back to the discourse about corruption in the third world that mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I've read some books about Tolbert where they're like, yeah, he was basically a fucking sociopath. He's a piece of shit. Like, it's good that like people broke into like the presidential mansion and like ate his heart and fu- and established like a brutal military dictatorship that was like, a hundred times more corrupt and a hundred times more backed by the U S and like drove the country into civil war and poverty. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, he was a piece of shit, but it's like, well, eh, I don't know. Like, I think there's a little bit of gray area there. Like, I think you could put people like this in a category and this is very much like the non-aligned movement and a lot of political currents in the third world that were kind of trying to forge like this third path between like full free market capitalism and like yeah. Soviet communism or whatever. My thing is like, I don't actually know. That's like the thing that I would, I would say that like they were both like, uh, I mean, well, it's interesting because Zeal Hawk was actually more like kind of uh, sort of traditional or like wanting to do like more kind of central planning in a way. Whereas like the Buteaux are much more like Western leaning and much more like, you know, they, like uh, Ben Azir Buteau was like, I want to be the Margaret Thatcher of Pakistan. Like that was her whole, pose and it like that they were like very much like liberal like neoliberal kind of like secularist like leaning in that direction whereas like the sort of uh you know uh for lack of a better word like the 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 person who would be like caricatured as like the strong man figure who also was horrible and, and uh, deeply corrupt would be zeal hawk in this comparison yeah and, and I mean, well i mean they, it's but also, they were all like yeah. super like they, none of them were like pro communist or like anything like really <laughs> like yeah well uh, the lost prophets book kind of characterizes not as communist but like a socialist leaning direction uh as some of uh budo's um policies were and but you also see that i mean because actually budo uh threw abadi in jail in the early 70s right mm, uh, yeah 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 so he spent a little time he was kind of on the shit list for a minute but then he eventually got out and i think lost prophets mentions that there was a lot of fear like one of the reasons he was throwing it wasn't just because of like banking corruption or anything like that, but there was fear that he was a CIA asset. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, he get, ended up getting thrown in jail for a while, I think around 71, 72, but then he seemed to kind of get back in the better graces of Budo. Um, yeah. Well, he gave him like a bunch, gave him a bunch of, money. of money. Yeah. yeah. So basically both uh, Budo and the person who overthrew him, General Zia, both had like business relationships with uh, Abadi and BCCI you know, mm-hmm. at various points. So everybody is kind of, like, involved in it. Um, yeah, definitely, like, there was a sense of Buto and, and Abadi being enemies and that there would be, like, kind of, yeah, like, uh, that's the whole issue of, like, the nationalization of Well, the yeah, I was going to bring that, that up, too, because that was, to. that was yeah. under Buto as well, right? They nationalized mm-hmm. yeah. Abadi's bank. Under, uh, yeah, Zulfikar Buto, yeah. Yes, so that's that actually led to him kind of looking for different pastures in the 1970s because his bank got nationalized and he so he wanted to start a new bank for the third world that would be you know international in scope mm-hmm. and that's when he was introduced to uh to Sheikh Zayed and of Abu Dhabi 
And then uh, he provided a lot of the seed capital along with uh, a wealthy Pakistani family um, who yeah, he had I'm worked with. Find out. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to, I don't know where the fuck, I know I must have written it down somewhere. Uh, Gorkal? Is that who you're talking Gorkal. about? Yes, it was the mm-hmm. Gorkal family. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so with that, he was start. He started to open up uh, branches in like a few different, you know, uh, countries, and kind of got the UAE on it. And the UAE was like kind of a relatively late comer to like the oil game, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait had started drilling, and like Iraq had started drilling earlier. And it really, I think, wasn't until like the late '60s, early '70s that they started pumping oil. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. then, and then, when the oil crisis popped off, interestingly, kind of led led by the Shah of Iran, which I always forget that he was like instrumental in sort of leading the oil. You would think as kind of like a U.S. puppet or a U.S. ally, the way he was, that maybe. But I've I've also I remember reading something years ago that I don't know. Maybe this is wrong, but that Kissinger kind of like encouraged them to do it. But I don't know mm. why he would do that. I don't know. It, I don't know. I mean, I definitely could. That's like another thing. Like, that's a great aspect of this, uh, of Outlaw Bank. Like, that the Shah is like, again, like, everything is kind of seen as being like the result of like Avidi and like BCCI's machinations. And like, the like the Shah is like someone who, like, Pahlavi, he's like a victim in some way, you know, like, and he was our greatest ally. <laughs> and now, like, you know, they are helping the Muslims. I found some article like that was, I think, even before the scandal broke. Like, uh, I want to say, was it even in? Uh, oh, yeah. The real BCCI agenda is slam from the New York Times. No. Uh, no, yeah, it's uh, very, very sinister. Uh, wow. Unfortunately, um. they're giving me their <laughs> stupid paywall. They're course. trying to make me subscribe. Yeah. They're uh, terrified that yeah. it's a Muslim secret Muslim agenda. It actually was after that. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. It says when Clark M. Clifford and Robert A. Altman, who we'll talk about, you know, throughout, were indicted on criminal charges stemming from their involvement with the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, most of the world's attention was focused on the financial issues. But while BCCI, which has been accused here and abroad of money laundering, fraud, bribery, and many other banking irregularities, made billions of dollars for its founders and millions of dollars is charged for Mr. Clifford and Mr. Altman, uh, whose bank, I think, you know, they were like the chairman and uh, they some other like major, they both had like, you know, high ranking officer positions in the first American bank, which was like, there's a whole debate of whether like BCCI like owned it. And that was like a big indictment of them that they illegally owned first American bank uh, through all these like, you know, maneuvers. And yeah. that was like one of the things that really uh, led to BCCI going down in flames in the way that it did. But I feel like is, is First American Bank still around? Like were they forced to close? I feel like they weren't. Are they still around? Uh, I don't know. Sure. That yeah. that aspect of the story is super interesting. And I think we'll probably get into it later because like it, that went through a bunch of different name changes. Um it was called at various like it, it was it was subsidiaries of subsidiaries and buyouts and things like that. But it is one of the sussest kind of this is a bank from Washington, DC that I don't think it's like around anymore in the the sense that it was when it was allegedly like, you know, connected to BCCI. I don't mm-hmm. know if it went down with it. I mean, some of the main American figures were indicted and prosecuted 
so in that sense like their spot did get blown up a little bit you know people like like clark clifford and robert altman well clark clifford got off because he was so old like yeah, he, he was, was like, going to be prosecuted mm-hmm. but he was like just too old yeah Which i think like, is why I mean, they were willing to overwhelmingly like, the people who went down were like the Pakistani employees of the bank, which is another thing. Like the people yeah. who really were to blame, like didn't suffer in the way they should have. This has uh, real, and I feel like there, there's so many connections, but it has real like taken out Manuel Noriega vibes, which yeah. is like funny because Noriega was like intimately connected to the BCCI. Yes, uh, or exactly. like the money flows yeah. were like very connected. And but, uh, apparently by total you know? happenstance, like, you know, the, but this um, idea that oh like suddenly you woke up one morning and decide noriega is like a dangerous drug trafficker and we have to go invade his country and like take him out but maybe you're actually doing like a cleanup operation because he has blackmail on like everybody in the white house and you need to like take his he served his purpose you need to take him out of the game kind of thing and i feel like the fact that i mean basically that the the sort of federal attack on bcci and the invasion of panama and the invasion of the gulf war you know, is this is all happening in like 1990, 1991, when our favorite blue blood is president, George Herbert Walker Bush, mm-hmm. who is like so nebulously connected to all of these players that it's almost hilarious. Yeah. But I think I think this NYT article, I'm going to keep reading it because this okay. really gives you this is why like the tone of this is part of the reason why I feel like, you know, it, it brings to light a lot of the stuff I think is important to kind of appreciate about the sort of positioning of BCCI and why like it's a, it's a relevant detail in like everything that happened. It's not just like a random corrupt bank that serves as like a nexus for all these sus people. I feel like it is in many ways like a scapegoat and you can see like it, it really happening very clearly in this. Like, so <laughs> they write, uh, you know, even though, you know, it made millions of dollars for its founders and for Mr. Clifford, Mr. Altman, the aim of BCC, its main mission was not financial. The aim of BCCI from the outset was to put forward a radical Islamic political agenda and to support third world causes. From the beginning, BCCI's founder, Pakistani businessman Aga Hassan Abedi, a member of the ultra-religious, quasi-secret Sufi sect, made plain, <laughs> the, <laughs> made plain the bank's ideological bent. He and other bank officials openly discussed their political and religious mission. In my opinion, it is unlikely that Mr. Clifford and Mr. Altman were unaware of BCCI's political and ideological activities. Mr. Abadie's claim for BCCI was for it to acquire enough political power to compete with and even dominate Western financial institutions. As investigators in Britain and the United States have showed, Mr. Abadie wanted to use BCCI's money to gain a measure of control over Western political institutions as well. One of the ways BCCI tried to gain political and ideological influence was through the media. To do that, Mr. Abadi bankrolled publications like South Magazine, a now-defunct economic and political magazine aimed at the elite of the third world. Oh no, like a financial magazine for people in the third world? <laughs> the evil. Uh, British investigators say BCCI was fi- also financed a regular opinion column on the Middle East that was published in Britain's Manchester Guardian newspaper. In the United States, according to disclosures made during last year's Senate subcommittee hearings chaired by Senator John Kerry, Democrat of Massachusetts, BCCI indirectly aided in the purchase of several cable television systems and tried to buy more. Wow. BCCI accomplishes political as well as its financial goals. It is charged by bribing prominent citizens as well as high government officials so they would act on the bank's behalf as Mr. Clifford and Mr. Altman allegedly did. Both were charged in the recent criminal indictments with accepting bribes and lying to the Federal Reserve to conceal BCCI's ownership of First American Bank Shares, Inc., Washington's largest bank. 
According to investigators, bribing was BCCI's modus operandi. BCCI had plenty of cash, millions from drug traffickers and approximately $1 billion of unrecorded banking deposits from Islamic countries, principally Saudi Arabia. According to British investigators, these funds were used under contractual stipulation for commodity investments according to the structures of Islamic law. So a thing about like that people might not appreciate is that like, you know, there's a very strong Islamic prescription against uh, ursary or usury. Sorry, yeah, I usury, don't know why I'm always yeah. doing it. Like it's a bear always somehow is happening to me. Anyway, so usury or riba. So like Islamic banking loans can't do interest. But usually how this works is that like there's some kind of loophole. Like BCCI said like, oh, I'm just gifting you this extra money it's not interest but like you know uh they didn't really have like a fully realized alternative model it was like which is often the case with a lot of like uh quote-unquote like sharia banking like today but Mm -hmm. anyway so that's probably what they mean by commodity investments according to the strictures of islamic law like making it as scary as possible when it's basically like you know (laughs) just like a uh, the massive infusion of unrecorded deposits provided bcci with a distinct advantage over its western counterparts okay according to british investors bcci was the bank for the islamic fundamentalists as well as for terrorist groups like abu nidal and shining path the violent maoist terrorist organization operating in peru it is also charged that BCCI's special services lured criminals, drug lords, and corrupt politicians into its sway. Its services on their behalf included falsification of documents and intricate shell game transactions to siphon off financial resources from central banks. BCCI was also a major catalyst in the transfer and sales of strategic weapons, including nuclear military technology from the West and ballistic missiles from China to third world countries, especially Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, as documented by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and by the House Republican Research Committee on Terrorism and Unconventional Warfare. Mr. Abadi's major contribution to furthering radical causes like those of Abu Nadal was to use an international bank as a political instrument. What he put in place through BCCI was allowed to continue for 19 years while the world's banking community and government sat back and in some cases watched. Yes, that's what they were doing. They were sitting back. That was the extent of their involvement. It was this misplaced sense of realism on the part of governments. Interesting, you know, the critique of realism that we're hearing again today, including the United States that allowed BCCI to grow to such global proportions before being shut down. It is also what gave BCCI the resources to draw people like Mr. Clifford and Mr. Altman into its web. Yeah, I'm looking forward to like just exploring in more detail how like this web was in fact like actively built by like uh, the American intelligence community in particular, the CIA. But you can see how like the sort of uh, discourse around this as the biggest bank fraud in history, which like, you know is like uh, eh, no i would <laughs> like, say no. yeah the the biggest one that was like fully publicized and yeah exactly real and punished mm-hmm, to some true. extent sure yeah, yeah you maybe could say that, but maybe you know, maybe prior to 2008 maybe um, well exactly i mean yeah <laughs> like uh, how much drug money goes through all the major banks like hsbc and Deutsche yeah. Bank and Bank Bank of America. Do we want to talk about them a little bit? Yeah, exactly. They had a little something mm-hmm. to do with BCCI. They did. They were involved. Yeah. They. But you know, a yeah. lot of people will say they knew that it, it didn't smell right to them. They could tell this was just a bunch of you know nonsense. But oh, whatever. Somehow they got hooked in. By um, the way, I it was interesting looking back over like Bank of America. Like I tried to look into their history a little bit and. Uh, by the way, like I, I totally forgot that they, they were from San Francisco originally. I always associated mm. them with Charlotte, but it's really a different company in North Carolina 
merged with them in 1999, very much like Kinney National Parking Company, like buying Warner Communications and then changing its name to Warner. You know, it's like it just like ripped off the face of B of A because it was more well known and put it Mm -hmm. on itself and stuff. And it was started as like an Italian American like immigrant bank uh, by I think AP Giannini. Um, And but now it's like it's 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 lineage it's merged so many times that that, you know it has the lineages of like 10 different banks some of which go back to like boston and like the 1700s but so the wasps got in eventually but it was interesting reading about like the maneuvers that bcci had to do in terms of like penetrating the american market just how many banking regulations there still were Mm -hmm. in the 1980s and how i feel like if any congressperson got up today and advocated to like reinstate the banking reforms (laughs) of like 1953 or 56 or stuff that was in place in the 80s like they would be like taken out and like shot or something like it would be so unthinkable to like how could you restrict the free flow of like business and capital like you basically couldn't have in the 80s that they talked about this like you couldn't have interstate banking like you couldn't have a bank own branches in more than one state which is very un like yeah. now we have like big four banks basically i mean so many small ones got wiped out starting with the savings and loan crisis and then every recession since then has basically wiped out all these like small banks and then there's been all this consolidation so now you have like four that are all national and international and there's like no barriers between states so really we're kind of in like a much more of a financial wild west than mm-hmm. uh, than we were back in like 1980 or like the late 70s. There still were plenty of ways to do such shit and get around things, but like you you couldn't quite go at it as aggressively. Like that would come later with the well, I guess first the the deregulation of the SNLs. I think in the early 80s, which led to that huge fraud crisis, um, and then like the repeal of Glass Steagall and all the shit that Clinton did. He'll come up later. Uh, in the 90s to really deregulate the banking sector and just make it like a free-for-all. So, you know, they they had to operate in a slightly more restricted era, but they still got quite a lot of stuff done. Oh, by the way, uh, I found an article. I'm I'm getting... It's been deleted off Baltimore Sun, but it did say in 1993, first American to split, sell mortgage subsidiary. I see. So they sold themselves to a North Carolina banking company. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the company that eventually became Bank of America. Hmm. That wouldn't surprise I, me because eventually, I wonder, all, like, yeah, and I wow. wonder if their like investors got reimbursed on like all the people you know throughout like mostly the third world who yeah. was, like didn't get their money back after BCCI crumbled. Well, seeing as um, they got they got sold, they did lose hundreds of millions of dollars in like I think 1991. So they had mm-hmm. a disastrous year. They were investigated by the feds repeatedly yeah. for their connections to BCCI, but then they were able to sell themselves to a North Carolina bank. So they did get paid out and didn't go to jail, except for maybe Clifford and Altman. But for the most part, they, yeah. they seemed Although, to get away yeah, pretty Clifford, hard. Did Altman go to jail? Clifford didn't because he, you know, he was old and he like got sick. I'd have to check if Altman actually did end up Yeah, going. it's hard to find out if Robert Altman, yeah. Uh, he was an American lawyer and video game executive. Uh, yes, he, uh, this sus. is the right guy. And so, also uh, married to, this is hilarious, uh, married to Wonder Woman. 
Did you catch what, that? Uh, wait, Gal Gadot? Robert Altman was. Oh, and, and by the, the way, not not the director Robert. Altman. This is Robert A. Altman. Yes, exactly. Yeah, lawyer. Uh, no, but like the old Wonder Woman. Yeah, and False Prophets. No, he he married Linda Carter. Oh right. And yeah, apparently, he right. and Linda Carter became these socialites on the DC circuit because the book said that she was always just like a second rate, like you know, a, like a B list TV actress in Hollywood. But then when she went to DC. You know, I guess they were they were all a bunch of little like Marvel soy boys back then. Um, they just all soy faced and were like, "Oh, Wonder Woman!" And they invited mm-hmm. her all these parties, and she became very buddy buddy. Like th- that couple, they became like a power couple in DC during the peak BCCI years. So this is what happened. Clifford was in poor health. He was severed from the case as he was physically unable to go to trial. Altman maintained his innocence, refused offers of a plea to resolve the cases, and insisted on going to trial. In the summer of 1993, after a five-month trial, the court dismissed the central count in the indictment of bribery, saying no evidence is presented by the government to support it. Altman declined to present a defense case and was acquitted by the jury of all remaining charges. The Department of Defense dismissed the companion federal indictment. The civil suit by the Federal Reserve was settled, with Altman agreeing to be banned permanently from banking. So then he resumed his Washington, D.C. legal practice. Uh, and he co-founded ZeniMax Media with Bethesda Softworks founder Christopher Reaver, a sus lord who has come up before, I believe. What was um, it? What was his background? He's like he's like the uh, CEO of Bethesda, which makes like Elder Scrolls, and I think they do like Fallout oh. and shit. But really? he's like into like mind control and like weird like stuff like that. Like uh, I remember uh, reading. But yeah, anyway, so apparently they work together to create a new parent company of Bethesda, ZeniMax Media. So he's fine. Jesus. Okay. Uh, well, and he was fine. He's dead now. He died okay. in 2021 uh, after endorsing Hillary Clinton in 2015 for president. Oh, isn't that uh, nice? With his wife Linda Carter, uh, his family friends since uh, 1983, of course. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. No, they were hanging out with everybody. So uh, anyway, no, he uh, didn't suffer. Uh, it was only no, a bunch of Pakistani employees. Um, who went down in flames. I did yeah. find out I did find out who oh. uh First American Bank shares was sold to. They were sold to First Union Corporation from mm-hmm. Charlotte, North Carolina, which very interestingly uh merged with Wachovia Bank. Remember them? Mm-hmm. Um uh on September fourth, two thousand one. Just in time for a certain mm, um yeah. event to happen. And then Wachovia, so sadly, would get wiped out in two thousand eight, wouldn't they? And then get taken yes. over by Wells Fargo. True. Um and that but the merger of First Union and Wachovia made Wachovia Corporation uh, one of the largest financial holding companies in the US. And prior just prior to that, they had acquired Core States Financial Corporation, headquartered in Philadelphia, which was the largest merger in US banking history. Core States traced its history to 1781 and the Bank of North America, the first bank chartered in the United States. Once the merger finalized, First Union claimed 1781 as its founding date. No. Ugh, see, uh, th- that seemed to be a thing with all these. Ba- even Bank of America did that, where they acquired like a Boston banking branch that is like, ooh, we were founded in like they're like getting their son bankers of the American Revolution cards like validated. Um, but that is also I'm noticing a pattern here of like any American bank that puts like first, it's like they're flexing in a way. It's like we were here first. 
Like these mm. are the these are the evil, you know, like wasps and bleeding edge that know that nine eleven is going to happen, um, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> Which we'll, we'll get to that later because I mean, honestly, yeah, um, a lot of people probably, especially in this field, probably did see it coming but anyways before we get too ahead of ourselves so i mean i kind of have an i think we'll draw on some of what this book at law but there's a lot of sus stuff in this book most of it i feel like you kind of have to read between the lines to get to but i have a little bit of an axe to grind with like some of this shit so i just want to like i just want to read some of this like about you know this is you know where the story begins anyway so we might as well like read some of it so anyway this is some more stuff that they have to say about uh so the story of Aga Hassan Abidi begins 65 years before his birth in the town of uh, Mamutabad in the glittering Muslim kingdom of Uad in the nor- uh, north central India. Uad was one of the most powerful kingdoms of the Mughal Empire, which had ruled large sections of India since the 17th century. The Mughals were Muslims, a small but powerful minority group in an otherwise Hindu and Parsi India. Yeah, right. Uh huh. Everyone else in India was Hindu. Uh, in the early part of the 19th century, the British conquest of India, India had encroached most violently against this group. And in uh, 18, I don't know if it was most violent against them, but anyway, in 1857, the Muslims of north central India, including those under the rule of the Raja of Mahmudabad, made one last bloody attempt to reclaim the power and influence they had lost. This insurrection, which became known to every British school child as the Great Mutiny, uh, though its Islamic participants still call it the War of Independence, was brutally suppressed by the British, thus shattering completely the political power of the kingdoms of the old Mughal Raj. More than a million died in religious riots. One of the victims of this vast paroxysm of Muslim violence <laughs> was Aga Hassan Abidi's great-grandfather. He had been a courtier to the Raja of Mahmudabad, part of a class of well-educated Urdu-speaking senior and petty bureaucrats who managed the ruler's estates and took care of the details of official business. For his participation in the mutiny and disloyalty to the British Raj, Abidi's forebear was hanged in a cage in the streets of Lucknow to serve as an example to the rest of the insurgents. By the time of Abidi's birth in that same city in 1922, the remnants of the powerful Islamic kingdoms had fallen into a long and gentle decline. Stripped of most of their political power by the British, isolated in a sea of Hindi culture, the Rajas were nonetheless tolerated to manage their lands, collect their taxes, and operate as satraps in the British Empire. And Abidi's family continued to do what it had done for generations, serve the Rajas of Mahmudabad as administrators, revenue officers, and private secretaries. In 1922, the decadent, princely state of Mahmudabad was still one of the largest and richest in northern India. And despite the ravages of the mutiny, its rulers could still trace their lineage back to the grand and powerful Mughals of the 17th century. From a golden throne in a vaulted palace, the Raja collected more than a million dollars a year from 530 villages and uncounted thousands of hamlets. Yeah, um, uh, oh, I guess, but all that money was actually like put back into India and not stolen and taken to Britain. But anyway, uh, well, back in the past it was. Uh, though Abidi's father and grandfather had never risen to the rank of senior advisors to the Rajas, they were considered to be among the inner circle of confidence. As such, they both had solid, respectable middle-class status and a view of the shimmering luxury of the Rajas' lives. Uh, he goes on a little bit. So it was in this culture that Aga Hassan Abidi lived until he was in his early 20s. As a child, he'd listen to the tales of Baroque luxuries, of the glory days of the Mughal Raj, of the bloody struggle against the British conquest. He also grew up intensely aware of his status as a double minority. Not only was Abidi a Muslim, 
uh, Muslims made up only 20% of the population of North Central India. Okay, so it's gone from a sea of Hindi culture to... Uh, well, anyway, but also he was a Shiite Muslim, uh, you know, Sikh. Uh, as in... Oh, Sikh as in, that's what they wrote. Uh, as in all the British... Uh, and in all of British-ruled India, uh, Shiites accounted for only 15% of Muslims. This is one of the worst parts of this whole thing. The Shia are to Islam what puritanical fundamentalists are to mainstream Christianity. A minority sect known for its obsessive attention to work, politics, and religion. In contrast to the more dispassionate and detached Sunni Muslims, the what? Shia are passionately... This is, like, so insane. I can't deal with it. This is from 1993, so it really yeah, goes to show, 90s. like, how... like And people, like, read this... Like, this is, like, a thing. Like, people, like, read this book to understand, like, BCCI and what happened and, like... The, like, absurdity of this, like, is about a topic that is, like, so important, like, in world history and, like, just the, like, it just, anyway, like, the Shia are passionately demonstrative and are fond of putting on elaborate shows of penance and mourning. The Shia have a mystical bent as well, reflected in their devotion to martyrdom, belief in saints, and worship at the tombs of holy men. Shia Islam is more political as well. As in Khomeini's revolutionary Iran, Abadi's family were intensely religious, teetotaling Shia, uh, sorry, Shiites, I'm just going to go with what they wrote, who dutifully observed all Islamic rites. Islam pervaded and would continue to pervade every corner of Abadi's life. So just like to clarify, Shia aren't like the extreme Muslims, like a different sect of Islam based on like, you know, they actually are a sect unlike uh, Sufis. Um... And, uh, you know, basically everything that says, I mean, there is definitely like more, uh, the practice of tomb visitation, which used to be more generally widespread, uh, in mm. Islam is now, uh, you know, definitely more popular among, uh, Shia. Uh, I mean, all Muslims, like a, a, many Muslims believe in saints, uh, many Muslims like visit tombs still, uh, many Sunnis do and pretty much all Muslims like, you know, uphold martyrs. Uh, you know, there definitely is a uh, tradition of penance and mourning in, in, among the Shia, but like the idea that. Sunnis are more dispassionate and detached <laughs> and uh, less political. Okay. Is interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, that see that seems to be kind of like he hit and more mystical. <laughs> like yeah, I feel okay, like there's happens. a lot of you still see it to this day, but like uh, Iranian revolution brain with people yeah. in, from America that are writing about this because it's just like they weren't mm-hmm. paying attention to anything until this like bearded you know mullah like took over <laughs> yes, exactly. our embassy and like told us he hated us and said death to america and mm-hmm. so now it's like everything's filtered to oh, like who are the shiites oh they're like the iranian they're like the religious ones and then like oh the sunni it's like have you seen the saudi royal family like yeah. i know they're hypocrites but like on the surface they're very like religious you know uh or like the entire movement for pakistan to exist in the first place like as he wrote like shia aren't the majority of muslims in india so like who were the very political muslims driving the genesis of this islamic state yeah like who? i get i don't know like yeah <laughs> i don't know but um anyway so i'm trying to see if like there's uh anything like super relevant to read here in the interest of time you know it talks about his love of falconry uh and everything i mean i guess that like gives an interesting picture of like his early life uh but that type of stuff like that's not 100% unique to uh, Betty and Gwen, really, either. Like, uh, you know, we read that uh, article, like, their true agenda, Islam. And there is all, there's another one in, in the WAPO, I think, from around the time that was, like, it was called BCCI's Abity, A Courtier's Ruin. 
Um, you know, it's the same thing where it's like 10 foot oil portraits of Queen Victoria and the bejeweled Rajas of Mahmudabad stare out on darkened dining and dancing halls, swathed in dust in the flaking palatial, palatial ruins of what once was one of the richest and most dynamic kingdoms of the Indian subcontinent. Okay, I wonder why it stopped being rich. I wonder what happened. Hmm. What could it... Uh, anyway, um, yeah, you know, in Mahmudabad, Muslim Rajas administered great tracts of land from a gold and silver throne. Same, like, t- f- framing, the gold throne. They financed idealistic politicians such as Mohandas Gandhi and Pakistan's founder, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. They doled out gifts to their subjects, paid stipends and renowned poets and intellectuals, plotted against the British Empire, and finally witnessed the birth of two of the modern world's most impoverished post-colonial nations, India and Pakistan. Abadi and nearly all of BCCI's senior executives migrated as young adults from what is now India to the newly independent Islamic nation of Pakistan in 1947 and 1948, when the British Empire in the subcontinent and the kingdoms such as Mahmudabad, through which the British had ruled South Asia, fell amid bloody religious riots. In Pakistan, Abadi and other refugees confronted the challenge of building 20th century institutions from scratch in a culture still rooted in 17th century feudalism. Among other things, Pakistan at its birth had no large banks and very few bankers. You know, like, yeah, I mean, that is true. And like it did, like, you know, put them in a position where like they could easily be preyed upon by the large banks that did exist elsewhere. But like the idea that that's like a travesty. It's like a very old concept, like the like the fact that like what really I mean, really the roots of this go like so deep. But I don't know. Well, uh, yeah, you hear like yeah. like the idea that yeah, that the I mean the implication humming beneath the surface of all of this is uh, the colonialism is really for these people's like best own benefit, like it was for their own yes. good. And w- once they left, oh, the tragedy. Oh, yeah. No. Like you know, it's like even if like and they reverted know, back to their old ways of like not knowing anything, and that's exactly, how this happened. Exactly. The when only really, thing we tried to yeah. civilize them, we tried, or yeah. you know, and then they don't mention how like I think like when France pulled out of a, uh, I think it was Upper Volta slash Burkina Faso, they like ripped all of their, they like ripped the phones out of the wall and like took like everything and like disconnected all the electricity and were like, fuck you. Oh, fine. You want us to go? Well, eh. like. So, you know, yeah, there, there's actually, nothing like that happened. That's not relevant. This actually reminds me a little bit. Actually, hold on. Let me grab a book from my shelf quickly because this reminded me a little bit of one passage that has always stuck with me. Hold on. I think I actually have this bookmarked from, from a while ago. But, like, reading about BCCI, like, I feel like this is interesting context. It's a little bit of field from, like, our sources. But this is from a book I've mentioned on the podcast before. It's uh, Restating Orientalism uh, by Willa Halak. And uh, basically, like, the main argument of this book is about, like, kind of, like, Edward Said. Uh, It's kind of a critique of him and how he was, like, super focused on, like, the idea of, like, representation and literature and things like that without really giving a proper account of, like, the institutions in which, like, Orientalism as an academic field was was embedded. Mm -hmm. Um, And he talks a little bit about, like, the economic ruin that was inflicted on uh, a lot of these countries uh, in sort of the Islamic world that happened beforehand, which I think is, is interesting context. Uh, and I think it's something, you know, that most like sort of, uh, it, it's something that I think most kind of uh, accounts of, of BCCI, the context of it, you know, even going back to 1922 and the, the ruins of this post-feudal society, you know, mm. uh, don't quite appreciate how accurate. Uh, the direct and indirect imposition of the state in the Muslim world has largely gone unnoticed as a field of inquiry. Like its Western parent, the Muslim state, that is the state in the Muslim world, was deeply embedded with the latent assumption within latent assumptions of natural progress, 
uh, and was therefore seen as a natural and timeless phenomenon. This is in part due to the ideological formations to which the Western state itself was subject, but it was also because it developed through various stages of impositions over a century. In other words, both in British India and especially in the Ottoman Empire, the modern state arose by virtue of its institutions, together with the ideological props that cushioned and legitimized them by necessity. Conversely put, it was also it was the so-called reforms of the 19th century that created the state structure, not the other way around. The reforms rarely, if at all, seem to produce such effects, precisely because the modern state lives in an ideological web, were far more potent and effective than even the critical historian has accredited them. They were not a series of acts that just changed the law, education, administration, and similar spheres, however important these are. They had the effect of raising a state, which, as it was evolving, designed and implemented them. The process was clearly dialectical, which explains why the first reforms in the Ottoman Empire were what one might call ordinary reforms, but reforms that strengthened the physical might of the proto-state, a precondition for developing the status of a legitimate monopoly over violence and the threat to use it. Uh, and he talks about the institution of, of the WACF, which is like very important, like a very important economic institution uh, in Islam, like prior to colonialism. So he writes, uh, you know, before proceeding, he explains it. It is important to understand the magnitude of this phenomenon. The institution of the WACF in Muslim lands had over centuries effectively cemented the relationship between the human, physical, educational, economic elements within society, and to some extent, the polity. A thoroughly pious institution, it formed that substrate and matrix of philanthropy in Islam, playing an important role in the redistribution of wealth. One gave up one's property, quote, for the sake of God, a charitable act that meant offering aid and support to the needy. This later defined in a broad sense and ordained by the Quran as an integral, uh, as integral to the ethical formation and constitution of the individual. It also provided for the distribution of wealth within the family, affording care for its members and preventing the fragmentation of family property. The promotion of education through the WACF represented one of the best forms of engaging in good works, essential for Islam's social welfare and ethos of cultivating the moral technologies of the self. A considerable proportion of charitable trusts were thus directed at madrasas, colleges, uh, although WACF provided significant contributions toward building mosques, colleges, Sufi orders, hospitals, public fountains, soup kitchens, travelers' lodges, street lighting, and a variety of public works, notably bridges. The list of social services provided for by WACF is expansive. A substantial part of the budget is intended for such philanthropies uh, was dedicated to the maintenance, daily operational costs, and renovation of WACF properties. A typical WACF consisted of a mosque and rental property, for example shops, the rent from which supported the operation and maintenance of the mosque. A striking fact about the WACF was the volume of property dedicated to it across Islamic regions. By the 18th century, it is estimated more than half the real property in the empire was consecrated as WACF. That's the uh, Ottoman Empire, I believe. Depending mm -hmm. on the region, an estimated 40 to 60 percent of all real property across the Islamic world was constituted as WACF by the time Europe began its colonialist encroachments. Uh, so uh, the Ottoman government's economic and political gains were thus enormous. An increasingly centralized government had become the middleman who secured considerable profits in the process of collecting the revenues and endowments and then Back from the center, dwindling salaries are paid for the middle upkeep and operation of the WAC foundations. The back payments of the educational sector progressively declined, you know, talking about what happened post-colonialism, uh, reaching a near zero point by the middle of the 1850s. 
WACF money, formerly and for centuries belonging to the autonomous WACFs, which then used them for their own operations and the fulfillment of their mission, were now diverted to military and other state-building projects such as railways, through which the grip of the central government over the periphery was enhanced, this being a replica of what happened in Europe, except that the process in the Ottoman Empire and other Islamic reasons was condensed. WACF property and the institutions it supported, including those of the Sharia, began to fall seriously into ruin. This process was not unique, however. Nearly all Islamic regions suffered a similar fate. In due course, it will become clear that the French campaign against Algerian WACFs was the model that the Ottomans were forced to emulate, a campaign that was designed, justified, and rationalized through French Orientalism. And, you know, he talks about how the sort of attack on uh, this idea, like the idea of the WACF was the, you know, the sort of upheaval of this or the uprooting of this economic institution was sort of the goal of a lot of this Orientalist writing. You know, it wasn't just about depicting Muslims as like ugly or stupid caricatures. It really was about sort of convincing uh, people to change this, uh, uh, to like to uproot this sort of uh, economic system. It uh, like he writes, uh, yeah, the French Orientalists, like their British and Dutch counterparts who co-founded the very discipline of Orientalism, proved themselves to be more than instrumental in their government's colonial designs. In the government's bid to seize control of WACF properties, on which countless religious institutions were founded, France heavyweight Orientalists not only helped in matters pertaining to legislation, but also effectively campaigned, in the words of an American Orientalist, to decredit the institution among Algerians themselves. Intended to conquer the mines, this campaign was as central to the project of colonialism as economic gain, for the project, as I have been arguing, was not confined to capitalism, however important it was to Europe. The project heavily invested in the production of cultural and academic discourse and the creation of new subjectivities in European-like subjects. So, you know, they basically, they even use, like, the Quran to insist that the family waqf was a later innovation, or a bidet, a term that you hear a lot these days, uh, you know, they produce like various discourses to try to destroy it, to blame, uh, you know, the economic stagnation that they were experiencing, not on colonialism, but on this, you know, this age old institution. Um. But it's interesting, you know, how you can see in the what like the sort of framing or the language around that was used around BCCI, like the emphasis on family, the emphasis on charity and philanthropy, mm-hmm. how like, you know, this is something that is still felt as kind of in a way being missing. I think that it's not 100% wrong to uh, identify that as uh, being the case that like in some way, like, you know, this does come out of uh, not like, you know, uh, Islamic barbarity or like mysticism or anything like that, but out of a sense of, you know, the uh, sort of a deeply rooted economic model, like an economic linchpin that was systematically destroyed. Uh, because they, you know, wanted to do other things and to optimize their economies for their own benefit under the, you know, the colonial governments, that is. Yeah, there were self-serving reasons for undermining this and like a massive on top. Yeah, it was so a like, massive on top. And part of it was like this Orientalist language that you see, like, you know, being used all around this. And it, it's, it's not just like a matter of being like, uh, you're being Islamophobic. It's like literally this is the continuation of a discourse that was created as propaganda for destroying the economic institutions of this world. And behind this whole calamity, one man. A man who built this banking empire, who befriended presidents, prime ministers, potentates. A man who is now accused of pulling off one of the great crimes of the century. This man, Aga Hassan Abadi, he was BCCI a worldly, well-connected Pakistani 
who at the height of his power was a spellbinding hypnotic figure to some occult leader. Abedi said he had a vision of an Arab bank that would be the largest in the world. He was clearly a charismatic character. He was able to, um, uh, I think, persuade a great number of people, employees and others, to support this vision of his. And I think initially, uh, it was successful. And in the feudal desert sheepings of the Middle East, the Abedi vision of a world-renowned Arab bank took hold. Abedi dazzled the sheiks and got $9 billion from one man alone, Zayed, the ruler of Abu Dhabi. Abedi was in action. He set up banks around the world where few questions were asked and where corrupt politicians took bribes to put their country's money into the bank. If you had a criminal enterprise and needed to move money, support the criminal enterprise, arrange payoffs, arrange uh, for currencies in difficult places, arrange to get around laws anywhere, this was a bank that would help them. PCCI became the bank of General Manuel Noriega of Panama and set up secret accounts to hide the general's money. PCCI laundered profits of the cocaine bosses hiding much of the money in phony commodities traders. BCCI maintained accounts in London to fund the activities of Abu Nadal and other Mideast terrorists. And see BCCI documents show that Abadi and top BCCI bankers siphoned off billions for themselves, setting up phony loans on the books. There were these fictitious accounts created and the bank then started engaging in drug money, laundering, and other criminal activities. The money was disappearing at least as fast as it came in and probably faster. And this was all accomplished through a whole mechanism of multiple banks, multiple corporations, a tangled web so difficult to follow that almost no one could, including his own people. Uh, in the end, there wasn't any bank underneath all of these deposits. There's no there then. But all the while, Abedi was able to pass himself off as a man of vision and good works. He showed up at the United Nations, gave out prizes from the BCCI Foundation, and came to be known as a philanthropist and confidant of some of the world's great men. How could anyone think that such a man or his bank could be corrupt? Former presidential advisor Park Clifford was Abedi's man in Washington and his lawyer. Former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Andrew Young, worked for Abadi as a consultant. Former British Prime Minister James Callaghan accompanied Abadi on economic missions. And, perhaps most impressive of all the men seen with Abadi, a former President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Carter flew around the world with Abadi, with millions of dollars from BCCI to promote good works in the Third World. The Bank of Credit and Commerce is unique among all the banks that I've ever dealt with. They are, are major sponsors. Mr. Carter may not have known it, but he became BCCI's most important ambassador. And law enforcement authorities now say BCCI used Carter's trips to Africa to further its larger, grander scheme. Obviously focused on people who would have, from BCCI's point of view, good market value in the areas where they were looking to develop depositors. Was it that cynical? I think so. Prosecutor John Mosca is running the BCCI investigation in New York. And he says in one case, after a Carter trip to Africa, 
set up a program to eradicate the deadly parasite known as the guinea worm. He supplemented and got special exemptions from local laws. They would cash in on what appeared to be good works in the third world. They would do the good works and then say, by the way, would you please do me the favor of exempting me from customs inspection payment of tax, which means they could move money in and out all, all the time, anywhere they wanted. Money, drugs, goods, yes. President Carter continued to accept millions of dollars from Abadie and BCCI for Carter's good works long, long after the bank had been implicated in the world's biggest financial scandal. Well, Brian, you see that. We should mention right away that we asked Jimmy Carter to come on the program, but he declined uh, to participate. But what is he saying now? I don't say much. What he has said when we tried to track him down was that he believed BCCI made contributions that further his projects, which were of an important purpose, he felt, in Africa. And that's about it. He did say to me at one point, I don't condone any criminal activity. But he said this long after the bank had pleaded guilty to uh, drug money laundering charges, and it was clear the bank was at that point very corrupt. All right. Well, how were the BCCI bankers able to reach people of such prominence and power? We'll find out more about that a little later in the morning. But first, the bank and intelligence agencies, including ours, who was using whom? We'll kind of get into the 1970s action at this point, mm -hmm. and yeah. th this brought to the fore a really interesting character, kind of political fixer who I actually had never heard about his story before. And in a way, I feel like there's there is this weird era of like scant presidential scandals after Watergate and before Reagan in the Ford and Carter administrations that mm -hmm. you just don't i get apparently if you go back and like read the actual newspaper articles at the time they were scandals but they all seem to have been quite forgotten about like I, i'm thinking about like korea gate where like members of the moonies were like bribing congressmen to like give money to korea you know shit like that like that was a kind of a big deal under ford mm -hmm. and then there were things like billy gate where I believe Jimmy Carter sent his brother, Billy, I think he was doing some kind of strange business deals with Libya, and uh, which is kind of interesting uh, in, in light of all of this. But I had never heard of the first scandal to hit the new Carter administration, which was called Lancegate. Mm -hmm. And it all yeah. circled around this interesting character named Bert Lance, who... Um, the the book lost prof or the book uh, false prophets uh, goes uh, pretty in depth into Bert Lance's sort of connections in Washington and his eventual connections with an assortment of like BCCI personalities and entities. Maybe I'll just read from chapter three a little bit to uh, to give people an idea of who Bert Lance is because this is also where you see in terms of like the contra tentacles you see it reach into sort of the Democratic Party milieu, you know, not just the Republican. And also, I mean, because th this is relevant again and again, like Southern Democrats, I see y'all out here, re really do seem to be like a vector for like financial corruption. Not to say that Northern Democrats or Democrats from anywhere else like weren't, 
But when mm-hmm. I think about like people like Burt Lance and then like Bill Clinton and then the people around him, mm-hmm. um, they all seem to actually be tied up with like the same types of networks. In some cases, literally the same networks, as we'll see shortly. But I'll I'll just read here. Um, it's hard to imagine a more unlikely pair than Aga Hassan Abadi and Burt Lance. While Abadi appeared refined and cultivated, Lance was almost the stereotype of the Southern good old boy. There was also a striking physical contrast. Abadi had an average build, but the Georgia banker was a bear of a man, weighing 240 pounds and standing six feet four. However, Lance and Abadi also had much in common. They both had a knack for making political connections, and they both played fast and loose with banking regulations. These two characteristics were related. Both men used their banks to acquire political clout. Lance was born in 1931 in Georgia. Uh, he dropped out of college in 1950 to marry his childhood sweetheart, LaBelle David, uh, then worked as a teller at Calhoun First National Bank, there's first again, which had been founded by LaBelle's grandfather. Seven years later, Lance and a group of investors bought control of the bank, and he ultimately became its chairman. One of the most popular men in town, Lance was utterly unlike the image of the conservative banker. Friends and neighbors found him an easy touch, and he lent liberally to himself and his relatives as well. In 1966, Lance made the most important political connection of his life when he met a dynamic young Georgia politician, James Earl Carter Jr., known to everyone as Jimmy. At the time, Carter was a state senator running for governor. Lance became an important campaign supporter and contributor. They eventually became best friends. Carter is likened Lance to a brother. Although Carter lost in 1966, he won four years later thanks in part to Lance's help. After he took office, he appointed Lance to the post of highway commissioner. Lance enjoyed his stint in state government and made an unsuccessful bid for the Democratic nomination for governor in 1974 as Carter's chosen successor. It was later discovered that Lance's campaign committees wrote hundreds of bad checks against accounts at Calhoun First National and that the bank cleared them. Although Lance failed to gain higher political office, his career as a banker flourished when he was recruited by Financial General Bank Shares, that'll come up, FGB, a bank holding company based in Washington, D.C. FGB was an unusual institution. Although the McFadden Act forbade American banks to engage in interstate banking, FGB had been granted a special exemption and owned banks in several states. In most cases, it held a majority of the stock, with local investors owning the rest. So I actually, FGB is the bank that I think would turn into First American, but the, it's in a very complicated way. But anyways, uh, in January 1975, Lance became president of the National Bank of Georgia, NBG, FGB's subsidiary in Atlanta. Five months later, he and a group of investors bought control of the bank from FGB, and he was named chairman. As head of NBG, Lance became friendly with one of the most important financiers in the South, Jackson T. Stevens, the president and a controlling shareholder of Stevens, Inc. of Little Rock, Arkansas, one of the largest brokerage firms in the country. Lance and Stevens met in 1975. It was around that time that Stevens, Inc. managed a public offering of MBG stock. Quote, their common interests, one acquaintance said, were Jimmy Carter, a Naval Academy classmate of Stevens's, banking, money, religion, both Southern Baptists, and democratic politics, a reporter noted later. Um, not only was Lance a contributor to Carter in 1976, his bank was the single biggest single lender to the Carter family's peanut warehouse business. The oh, debt, right. I know, right? Everyone thought the peanut thing was clean, but nope. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, seed oil mafia stay stay winning. Oh. Um, so the debt to NBG. Oh, I guess they are seeds. Peanut oil. Is they like add the they add seed oil to it. That's oh no. Yeah, I know. The debt to NBG reached as high as 4.7 million. It was later alleged that these loans affected amounted to de facto financing of the presidential campaign, which would have been illegal. After an investigation, Carter was cleared of wrongdoing. Lance also let the Carter campaign use NBG's corporate plane without disclosing it as a contribution. The campaign was fined for this violation. After Carter was elected, he brought Lance to Washington as director of the Office of Management and Budget, one of the most important posts in the federal government. Damn, I mean, that is, that, that's not just a vanity post. That's kind of a big deal. Lance's dubious financial practices did not cause a problem when he was up for Senate confirmation, for federal officials had withheld important information about his activities from Senate investigators. A handful of journalists, notably New York Times columnist William Sapphire, began to dig into Lance's background and uncovered a number of apparent irregularities. It seemed that Lance had financed his purchase of NBG stock with loans from two big New York banks— Manufacturers Hanover Trust Company and Chemical Bank, and had then arranged for NBG to open correspondent banking accounts with them. In one column, Sapphire suggested that Lance received a $3.4 million loan from the First National Bank of Chicago, not because of his creditworthiness, but because of his closeness to Carter. This loan, according to Sapphire, enabled First Chicago's chairman, A. Robert Aboud, to gain life-and-death financial control over the man closest to the president. Abood denied favoritism. Hmm. Uh, Also, First National Bank of Chicago, incredibly fucking sus. In July 1977, the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee, chaired by Abraham Ribicoff, a Connecticut Democrat, looked into Lance's conduct and cleared him of wrongdoing, but Ribicoff acted too soon. More allegations of misconduct emerged almost daily, engulfing the Carter administration in its first major scandal, Lancegate. On August 18th, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the main regulator of nationally chartered banks, issued a report criticizing Lance's banking practices. Since the report did not accuse Lance of breaking the law, Carter treated it as an exoneration of his friend. At a press conference with Lance, the president made a remark that later came back to haunt him. Bert, I'm proud of you. Hmm. Nonetheless, Ribicoff announced <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, Ribicoff announced that his committee would be holding new hearings on Lance. In the meantime, there was growing pressure on Carter to fire his friend. And uh, on Labor Day, Carter met with Ribicoff and Charles Percy of Illinois, the ranking Republican on the committee, and the senators asked the president to dismiss his budget director. Lance turned for help to who else? Clark Clifford one of the most respected and politically well-connected lawyers in Washington. Clifford persuaded the committee to postpone Lance's testimony to give the banker more time to prepare. So the nationally televised hearings began with a parade of witnesses who recounted Lance's dubious financial practices. Lance defended himself on September 15th in a two-hour statement in which he lashed out at the committee for treating him unfairly. It was an impressive performance, winning him applause at the end. The New York Times observed, For the moment, he managed not only to push Senator Percy into regretful apologies about news leaks and misinterpretations, but also to win predictions from some members of the Senate committee that there would be a, quote, backlash of sympathy. Despite the rave reviews, Carter was unable to resist the pressure to fire Lance, and on September 21st, accepted his resignation with, quote, regret and sorrow. Hmm. But, hmm. 
The resignation was by no means the end of Lance's woes. He was the target of investigations by bank regulators and federal prosecutors, which led to an indictment in May 1979 on charges of violating federal banking laws. Clark Clifford's protege, Robert A. Altman, assisted Lance's defense team. A year later, the trial ended in a hung jury. On top of his legal troubles, Lance was in desperate financial straits. Around the time of his resignation, he was more than $5 million in debt, and the value of his biggest asset, his stock in National Bank of Georgia, had plummeted. His only hope was to sell the stock at well above the market price. Hope soon arrived in the person of Aga Hassan Abadi. So they say that Abadi was eager to expand into the U.S. Although he could open BCCI branches, he realized that the quickest route to growth would be through an acquisition. But there were several obstacles. One was the McFadden Act banning interstate banking. BCCI was affected because Bank of America owned a large chunk of its stock. Thus, if BCCI wanted to buy a bank in any state other than California, B of A's home, regulators would think B of A was trying to circumvent the law. Even though B of A was planning to dispose of its stock, Abadi would likely encounter opposition from regulators who were nervous about BCCI's rapid growth and its dubious banking practices. And so he decided one way around these obstacles would be for for a BCCI client to take over an American bank. The first such attempt was made by a member of the Gokal family that controlled the Gulf Group, the shipping empire that Abadi had supported for years. In 1975, Abbas Gokal made an offer for Chelsea National Bank, a small institution in Manhattan, and the owners agreed to sell it to him. Before the deal could go through, the New York State Banking Department had to give its approval. When the New York regulators checked into Gokal, they were far from impressed. John Hyman, the New York State Banking Superintendent, later said his uncertified financial statement showed total assets of $4.5 million, of which $3 million was in the form of a loan from his sister. His reported annual income from the prior year was, as I recall, approximately $34,000. The regulators also found that Gockwell had no banking experience, but very close ties to BCI. And so this prompted the regulators to take a closer look at BCCI, and they did not like what they saw. Hyman found that the BCCI group was structured in such a way that no single central bank or regulatory authority had primary responsibility for overseeing it. As Hyman and his staff dug further, they became increasingly alarmed. When they asked BCCI for details about large, unsecured loans to certain Arab customers, for example, the response was typically dismissive. It's private, they said, quote, it's private. Because of their wariness about BCCI's role, the regulators told Gokul's lawyer that his answers were unsatisfactory. Chelsea National was sold to someone else. And uh, at the same time, BCCI officials were looking at another New York bank, Bank of Commerce, which was controlled by FGB, the same company that spun off NBG to Burt Lance. Let's see. So Abdus Abdus Sami worked on this deal. Uh, They met with FGB's controlling shareholder, this is big sus alert, the retired Army General George Olmsted and William Skyling, that's spelled the old Dutch way uh, for astute listeners, FGB's chairman and CEO. Skyling later said that he had not been very impressed with Abadi. The BCCI chief, quote, was not the type of banker that I would care to be associated with. I doubted his judgment, and I went in to see General Olmsted and told him, maybe he can work with the Bank of America, but as far as I am concerned, I do not wish to be associated with Mr. Abadi. One of Skyling's former colleagues says the American banker was much more blunt and private. The former colleague says Skyling pronounced the name Abidi rather than <laughs> Abadi, the correct pronunciation. Quote, 
I threw a beady out of my office when he tried to buy Bank of Commerce back in the 70s, Skyling growled. He then muttered, bunch of unsavory people. <laughs> <laughs> That's the waspiest uh, thing ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, But then, but then in late 1977, after meeting Burt Lance, Abadi finally succeeded in putting together a U.S. takeover. The matchmaker was R. Eugene Hawley, the former majority Democratic leader of the Georgia Senate and a friend of Lance's. He was more than a local politician. He was involved in a Middle Eastern oil venture. Now, here we, this is interesting. Uh, in 1975, the evangelist Oral Roberts had introduced Hawley to Roy J. Carver, the multimillionaire chairman of Bandag Inc., a big tire retreading company. Hawley and Carver soon became involved in a project to develop an offshore oil concession granted by the government of Qatar. Hmm. Okay, and uh, so that's how they all got kind of connected to each other. Looking for this like oil concession deal that for some reason Oral Roberts was like setting up with like a tire retreading kingpin. These mm-hmm. fucking these evangelical <laughs> like yeah crime, like mob lords basically laundering their money. It sounds like it's another weird aspect to like the whole idea of like you know the foreign policy manipulations of like you know uh, Hassan Abadie. Like a lot of the people involved in this were like I mean Clark Clifford himself was like basically the guy like he had a huge role in like Israel even being a thing to this day. He was oh, like he's an very outspoken Christian Zionist. This is the yeah. thing he was most proud about in government. Was yeah. The convincing uh, Truman to recognize the state of Israel. Yeah, exactly. So, like, it's a little bit weird that, like, you know, this whole idea that all of these, like, die hard, like, Muslim haters, like, crusaders were, like, taken in by this guy and, and manipulated into, like, I don't know, giving Pakistan a, a nuclear weapon, the most horrible thing ever, you know, <laughs> like... No, it really uh, does kind of blow it out of the water. Yeah, that, that I think that that theory does not hold uh, a lot of credence at all. And, and when you see, like, the religious cross-pollination between, like, different groups of, uh, of Muslims and then the Israelis and then a bunch of, like, largely like southern kind of southern baptist kind of christians Mm -hmm. uh in america it seems to be there in which is very intriguing you know i mean i guess it lines up with the broader brzezinski casey strategy of the 1980s of creating this like ecumen like reactionary ecumenical alliance of like mm-hmm. right-wing Jews and right-wing Muslims and like right-wing Catholics and right-wing evangelicals to all get mm-hmm. on the same side to to defeat the evil empire you know so but it, it also like because of that the idea that you know this this bank was all about spreading a nefarious like muslim ideology is just like, okay yeah well even like, at that point like the whole yeah like the Brezhnev, uh like that whole like sort of consensus like hadn't really like this the whole like special relationship of the u.s with saudi arabia like as you said like a lot of this started percolating before like the big oil boom before the consolidation of opec and everything so like a lot of that stuff like uh, like Brzezinski's like I you know architecture of that hadn't like fully taken shape during like a lot of like this this time that kind of came into play later you know where it got was it well was, it was right uh, it was right on the right on the cusp of it happening because yeah, exactly, also yeah. the same thing this is like you know 1977 78 yeah. the other thing that had been created recently was like the Safari Club by CIA yeah. director George Bush which I think at the time had like Saudi Arabia, it had Iran under the Shah, 
Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think it had... I, I forget if it had Israel like officially, but I, you could sort of see some of these pieces like maybe starting to align in earnest. Uh, but of course, after Casey and Reagan get in, that's when it really like kicks off in a huge yes. way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I think like, you know, a lot of it did kind of start happening uh, in the Carter years for sure. But yeah, like, uh, I mean, I think that, yeah, a motivation in a way was to head like certain things off of the past. Uh, like if you look at like BCCI, like there was even a concern, like, part of the, you know, the arguments that were being made when uh, it was like, you know, talking about the necessity of bringing this down and how nefarious this was and kind of like exonerating all the Americans who were implicated, uh, you know, and blaming uh, certain people, the, like, what their dealings with the Soviet Union also came up. Like the idea, like the idea that BCCI had taken the secrets that they were getting from the CIA and given them to Russia was one of the evil things that they were supposed to have done. You know, Interesting. Uh, so like they had their fingers like, in a, you know, they were uh, pretty uh, promiscuous, like in terms of uh, who like they were involved with, you know, like, uh, it, yeah, w- yeah, like where they were involved. No, they're very uh, promiscuous. Also, same with Burt Lance, actually, because Burt Lance apparently arranged a lot of loans from the First National Bank of Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. I, I assume in the late 70s to the USSR. Like he made all these shady mm. loans to the Soviets, which is like, huh, okay. But again, you know, it's very easy to go like Bert Lance was a Soviet agent or something. But yeah. I think that kind of misses like the bigger picture going on here. And I mean, you people, you had people like the like the Ed Wilson scandal, which mm-hmm. uh, started proliferating when Bush was CIA director, and then he was making like shady arms deals with Libya, and then he got caught for it. So like even people that we were kind of uh, on bad terms with in the seventies, there was like a lot. I guess the seventies were just such a promiscuous decade, man. You know, like everybody was just experimenting and like, hey, maybe we'll give some grain loans to the Soviets. Like, but I think it was still done in people were jostling and. Uh, I don't think it's as simple as, I mean, I think also like the seventies almost were like the impression I got from, from false prophets is that, or not, sorry, I, the, the actually the impression I got from the other book, um, the entrapment. Oh, for the, yeah, the entrapment, uh, uh, from BCCI to ISI. Yeah. He mentions Uh, a few times actually, which is interesting that, um, yeah, I wish he provided more, like he went into it a little more, provided more hard evidence, but he mentions that most of the American banks in the late 1970s were facing some real financial problems. And actually, mm-hmm. he said, like, if they were subjected to honest accounting, they were all like bankrupt. Yeah, and so exactly. they had to they had to figure yeah. out some way. Um, and a lot of that was, I think, due to the huge amount of like South American debt that they had on their mm-hmm. their ledger that I believe him I believe a bit John I think he's <laughs> I think he's right um, I think he's right too yeah, and it's very like- intriguing and it actually makes more sense like once you start talking about the intersection between like intelligence agencies and like shady high finance and like the the government and like geopolitics and all this shit that like the international banking is like a crucial national security concern and really almost like a geopolitical concern 
you know, mm-hmm. so the idea Absolutely. that, yeah. and, and we know that the people that are going in and out of government and in and out of the banks and business and stuff are often like the same people, particularly people like mm-hmm. Bill Casey. It was like a Wall Street lawyer, you yeah. know, and people like Who the Dulles brothers. became like, as we know, like super involved in BCCI. Like it was like, you know, his bank, like towards the end, like especially like in the, with regard to Afghanistan and everything. Yeah, he, he would he use heavily. it in like a really huge way um, yeah. in the 80s. Um, and even, you know, the, the shady guy like banker William J. Skyling, you know, who I just right, mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I managed mm-hmm. to find, there's not much information about him, but you can find his obituary on WAPO. And it does mention that he was a uh, high school classmate and friend of President Gerald Ford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, My you know, it's just, part. it's like all these motherfuckers know each other. They've all been like, of course, you know, he was in the Navy in World War II. Like, and J- Olmstead was like OSS. He knew all the old heads. Basically, he was part of that old gang. And, um, well, I think was a successful insurance man in his own right, but then got brought back into the military during and after World War II and was raised to the rank of a general and gives off the vibe of being like a kind of deep state money manager, basically. Mm-hmm. And he was the chief shareholder of FGB and the parent company that he founded, which like has a red Wikipedia hyperlink. You cannot find shit about this company, but it was called the International Bank of Washington, D.C., which eventually mm-hmm. all of these entities are pretty much matrushka dolls within the larger structure of like Olmstead's like shady banking network that for a while was called International Bank. I think by the 80s, it became first American bank shares was the name that it was mm-hmm. kind of operating under. That's the node, I feel like, of BCCI that that often gets a little bit downplayed and lost in the mix. I'm sure if I read John Kerry's 500-page BCCI report that it doesn't go as deep as it should on the international mm-hmm. bank side cuz the vibe I get from that thing is basically that this is a covert CIA bank from the get-go, absolutely 100 fucking percent. And one reason why I know that it kind of has to be is let me see where I put it here that like the International Banking Group, uh, or the, sorry, the International Bank of Washington, D.C., controlled a bunch of subsidiary organizations, including, call it, the Liberian Maritime Registry. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? They yes. managed the Liberian Maritime Agency. And as as I discovered, and I think this is uh, uh, in the first part of Demon Forces, that... Basically, the Liberian Maritime Registry was literally set up by the CIA and Secretary of State Edward Statinius Jr. uh, Mm -hmm. to be a kind of like a Delaware for international shipping. So you could do all kinds of shady things with like front companies and nobody was going to basically look into it. The Liberian authorities, uh, who at the time were under President Tubman, who was like super pro-U.S., they were just going to look the other way. But the management of the registry itself... That information was managed out of Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. I forget there was like a front company. I I didn't catch the name International Bank when I was reading like the Liberia sources. But apparently at some point, General George Olmsted basically acquired control over the Maritime Registry, which like just it's just like all all you got to do is put that together. Like this is like a CIA managed registry. And then this shady bank acquires the management of this registry. Um, I don't know how long or if they ever ceased or what entity actually operates the registry now. But that that's 
that that's as close as con- like hard confirmation I think as you're gonna get of like a smoking gun that this is like a CIA uh, operation that's going on. So it it does I think it raises the stakes when some of these books say that oh BCCI bought First American Bank shares. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like oh and really the CIA just let let a bunch of you know. Uh, oil sheiks from the uae and stuff like yeah just buy it um not buying that right it's pretty interesting like i think one thing that i think would be interesting to bring up like relative to the sort of like break between like the carter era stuff and the reagan era stuff is i feel like that's kind of baked into the narrative that's being fed some of the reportage on this like in outlaw bank there's a lot of like sus uh informants they have with pseudonyms uh, and I want to talk about like, you know, a couple of them, at least like uh, there's one who's incredibly sus named uh, whose pseudonym is Heinrich, uh, a German guy. Uh, but um. first off, there's an interesting guy who works for BCCI who has a pseudonym of Ali uh, Mirza, you know, uh, talking about him, you know, I think he's actually talking to, to somebody uh, else here, but um, he comes up in a little bit. So uh, he's talking to someone at, at BCCI saying, uh, we only sent the creme de la creme to the United States. There were more than 100 network people there, but none of them were BCCI people. I mean, BCCI bankers. But BCCI was the brains, the paymaster, the front, and really the major operator. But you don't know if they bribed anyone? That's BD asking them. Uh, there were lots of Americans who were put on the payroll. These were the people who had we had gotten to through blackmail, extortion, bribery. I don't know who all. They were judges, state policemen, the FBI, the Justice Department, whoever we needed help from. Uh, when they had an operation, they wanted it to go smoothly. They had a saying, a dog barking with you is better than a dog barking against you. And if it is your dog, you have to throw him a piece of meat. <laughs> it was easy in the United States because we knew the weakness in the United States. It was always money. You give a guy a loan and then he didn't have to pay it back. Uh, so who did you get to? Uh, do you know anyone for a fact? Senator John Tower. They knew his weaknesses. They sent him women, young beauties from Lahore, and they got videos and films. Did you see any of these videotapes? No, but I heard them talk about this in meetings. They talked about President Carter. It was a big thing about money to Carter. So again, this is in the third person. So it says, Beattie kept talk- taking word-for-word notes, but on this subject, Mastery seemed only to be repeating BCCI gossip about events before Mastery went to work for the network. He talked of Senator Howard Baker meeting with the organization's men in Europe and how then-Secretary of State Cyrus Vance had made a secret trip to Pakistan in advance of Carter's later public visit. Vance and later Carter had been hosted by BCCI's protocol department rather than Pakistani officials, which Mossy thought a good joke. The quote-unquote contributions to politicians Sammy had heard about all took place in the Carter era. How strange, Beattie thought. Ali Mirza, who was a great deal more specific on how the bank bought influence in the United States, had only had ta- also talked only about Carter-era politicians. Mirza had also talked about loans to Andrew Young, cash to Jesse Jackson, contributions to Carter, and of course about loans and money to Burt Lance, and the million dollars provided to influence the Georgia legislature to pass that banking bill. It was as if Abadie had given up trying to buy influence after Ronald Reagan was elected. But that hardly made sense. (laughs) Yeah, the Reagan administration was a Washington officials who cut corners, and many of them had gotten nailed for it. So all of these informants, weirdly, would just be like, yeah, it's so corrupt. You know, all these Carter officials were getting bribed. Like, we owned President Carter. Meanwhile, like, we know... The Reagan administration was up to their eyeballs and all this and like really were a mag- like a whole order of magnitude worse. But there are all these people who are like, you know, I mean, obviously it was like planned 
that eventually yeah. BCCI would go down. It would as go part down. Of this. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fascinating because it, it reminds me kind of like Epstein discourse where people try to like, even though Epstein was clearly like swimming among like both parties, they are insistent that like, oh, he like only it was all Clinton people or it was like it was all yeah. Trump people. And there's a yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, BCCI. It's a uh, it's operations just like ceased because there was a new sheriff in town and he didn't uh, agree yeah. with these Arabs. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, <laughs> like come on. Yeah, you know, it's obviously not the case. But maybe that's a kind of thing where that's like a limited hangout. Also, like shit code. Yes. Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Even though he's like shit coded enough. Uh, he shit coded himself enough already. But I mean, when you look at like the movers in Carter's administration, like putting him aside, he he's almost like a President Jimmy Zelinsky. Like he mm-hmm. was like a great face to put out there, like the humble peanut farmer, you know, yeah. who wears a sweater and blah blah mm-hmm. blah. And uh, like, but if you look like Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, Bert Lance, like these guys, and the, you know, basically he had backing from like the Trilateral Commission and the Rockefellers, even though like Nelson Rockefeller had been. <laughs> the president you know the vice president in the previous administration but i th- i see that more as the rockefellers were like covering both sides of the bets you know and it's like all right we can either get ford again who's our guy or we can get in this like fresh-faced little farm boy who is mostly amenable to being like steered in the directions we want as well mm-hmm. and yeah. then reagan i mean like <laughs> I actually, I, I wish I knew more about like the Rockefellers because they seem so prominently meddling in politics in the 70s. And then maybe it's because Nelson Rockefeller dies before 1980. But like David Rockefeller's attitude towards Reagan seems like it must have been supportive in a broad sense, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. there was, I don't think there was like a conflict between like David Rockefeller and, or really, I guess you could say that like he they got their man in the White House again in the form of George Bush. And once again, you had like Ronald Zelensky uh, be the president and <laughs> uh, mysteriously almost got assassinated like right away and then was like half senile for most of his term, et cetera, et cetera. So they mm-hmm. pretty much were an effective control. And, you know, you had people like Alexander Haig in the Reagan administration who were partying. The False Prophets book uh, says that. That when the the branch manager, the Miami branch of BCCI, uh, threw a big gala like mansion party, uh, a couple of the people who were there were uh, Alexander Haig, so mm-hmm. he was tight with BCCI. And then also uh, Jeb Bush was there, and perhaps most hilariously for maybe what we'll get into later, uh, future Senator Bob Graham, the uh, the guy who well now known as the guy who wants to get like the 28 pages of the 9-11 commission released but before that was the guy who was meeting with the head of the isi on the morning of 9-11 mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah and with porter goss uh who was like a lifelong cia wasp um who became the cia director under george w yeah we'll get into that that's in another a, one a bit, but like, like that's like, another one of the like hobby horses of abidullah john is like the sort of idea that the isi is like now being set up for like an, a similar like entrapment type scheme which i mean it's interesting because like you know he doesn't necessarily make this connection but like throughout these books like a lot of the sort of uh like quote-unquote whistleblowers like you know or people talking about the rumors inside bcci 
they'll say like, you know, BCCI and the Pakistani intelligence are the same. Like they're the same thing, which, you know, it's interesting, interesting. to think, you know, uh, I think that that's ISI to some extent true. Yeah. I, like it's believable. Yeah. Uh, also the, yeah. Uh, false prophets also did mention some of that kind of like Epstein shit about like boys from Lahore, like dancing boys. Yeah, I mean, didn't we even, right. didn't we, didn't that even come out during like the strat four leaks? You know, they were talking like all these military contractors were talking about getting dancing boys like in Afghanistan for mm. like VIPs or something. I, I there's just a little part here. Yeah. They wrote that um, Abadi. Apparently, this is like a, a a practice of Abadi's. I mean, grain of salt, I guess. But they said Abadi honed his approach in Pakistan during his days at United Bank when he courted Arab VIPs. One way he earned goodwill was by procuring sexual companions for them. When Sheikh Zayed visited Pakistan, Abadi would provide young Pakistani girls to members of the ruler's entourage. A Pakistani woman named Begum Ashgari Rahim was in charge of the prostitution operation, according to former associates of Abadi's. Rahim recruited these, quote, dancing girls, as they are called in Pakistan, by going to poor villages and making payments to their families. The girls were typically between 16 and 20 years old, but some were even younger. A few had not reached puberty. Rahim would purchase fine clothes and jewelry for them and teach them how to behave as sexual companions for Arab sheiks. Abadi procured boys as well as girls. One prominent member of a UAE ruling family is widely reputed to be a homosexual with a penchant for underage males. Quote, so BCCI brought boys from Peshawar, says a former bank official. And Abadi's involvement was so widely known that some Pakistanis used to refer to him as, quote, the great pimp. So, I mean, God, the overlap between, like, child pimping and, like, shady international finance, Mm -hmm. like, does all, like, is this a central component of, like, international finance that, you know, is, uh, it's super Yeah, Alabama Bank brings up the same thing. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's murky. It's definitely possible, though. Well, uh, here's something I'd throw out for clarification. The book only talks about him doing that for Arab sheikhs, because, of course, there's pervy Arab princes. And he was, like, personally chased, but he, you know, provided them, like, whatever they wanted. But what about all these Americans that are being approached? What about them? Are any of them Mm -hmm. being offered something? Is there perhaps opportunities for blackmail happening? Well, that guy just said uh, the same thing about uh, Tower, right? John Tower, that he, you know, there were videos of him with girls from Lahore, you know. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote a few notes on John Tower because, of course, he was, uh, I believe, he chaired the Tower Commission into Iran-Contra and, you know, tragically didn't get to the bottom of it because, you know, he failed to indict his good friend George Bush. And didn't he die in like a plane crash eventually? <laughs> he did. Yeah. John Tower. Yeah. Okay. So he was he was allegedly who said that he was Atlantic caught? Southeast uh, Airlines flight to uh, 2311. Uh, yeah. Passengers, NASA astronaut Sonny Carter and John Tower. Damn. Crash in the Georgia countryside. Georgia. I mean, <laughs> really, Georgia is a nexus point, you know, even when you're talking about uh, Gay Farone, the wealthy uh, construction magnet in Saudi Arabia, you know, one one of two construction magnet families that would have a big impact on America <laughs> in the <laughs> end of the 20th century. But he basically like set up shop in Georgia during the Carter years and became like this like Gatsby figure. And he was heavily involved in in all kinds of BCCI stuff. And then later iran contra and was uh investing lots of money into georgia and everything so i don't know about that but yeah john tower so who was saying that he was caught on video 
It was one of like BD's informants, the same guy, uh, Mirsa, uh, Mirsa, who was saying that Carter, you know, had been bribed uh, and that, yeah, John Tower, we had him on tape. You know, he was just kind of conf- like converting, uh, relaying the the rumors within uh, BCCI um, about, you know, who had been influenced uh, in the United States. And they mentioned that John Tower, you know, girls from Lahore have been brought in. Which, like, you know, uh, could easily, like, be uh, true. Like, there is, it's definitely, like, again, like, it's not, like, substantiated, like, in the way that, like, uh, some of these uh, allegations and other things are, but it definitely could be true. But, like, you know, again, like, it gets to the issue of, like, yeah, do, uh, is this something that is, like, unique to BCCI? No. Like, or, for instance, is the existence Mm -hmm. of BCCI why this is happening? Like, no. Like, they have their own, like, corrupt pimp banks, and like, yeah, uh, like in prostitution still and sex trafficking still happens in Pakistan and in South Asia and Afghanistan in general. But, you know, now they don't have a bank <laughs> like uh, <laughs> and the yeah. sex trafficking still happens around like all of these like influence ops and banks like and it's a lot to happen in, in, in the West. Well, but, clearly it was going on during yeah. the Afghan war, you know, and yeah. like 30 years later. So um, but yeah, no more bank and. Yeah, and all these guys. Who knows how many sickos are involved? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Senator Bob Graham said as he left the party uh, at Abdur Sekia's uh, house, he was the manager of the BCCI Miami branch. Right, yeah. He uh, was he, one of the eventual like whistleblowers, right? Abdur Sakia? Yeah, I think so, right? I, I guess so. I'm thinking of somebody else. Uh, Maybe. But in 1981, uh, he threw a lavish party in the penthouse of Miami's Interterra building. Lots of celebrities attended, including Andrew Young, Jeb Bush, and Bob Graham, the Democratic governor and now senator. As he left the party, Graham said, quote, These banks are making a great statement about South Florida. They were attracted here because of our growth, our ebullience, and our confidence in the future. Hmm. I think it might be the, the cocaine uh, more that yeah. you know, drew them to South Florida in the early 80s. So that also around this time is like they tried to they were trying to get control of like an American bank to get like a foothold. Right. Mm-hmm, in that the U S yeah. and there was a big mm-hmm. fight over it. Like, yeah. uh, I mean, regulators were kind of like slowing them down. Jackson Stevens is getting involved. And like, I think Jackson Stevens is somebody who is like the main subject to one of Mark Lombardi's drawings. Right. I, mm, I, I like yeah, it, I he's in the right. title. It's like George W. Bush, Jackson Stevens, like blah, 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 or something like mm-hmm. that. I, I'm pretty sure that's true. And Jackson yeah. Stevens also... Bill even though, the Lippo group and Jackson Stevens. That's right. Yeah, because Bill, even though... Like, this is of a Little weird, uh, funny yeah. pattern with, like, Bill Clinton is that even though he's a Democrat and uh, Jackson Stevens was, like, a super far-right Republican, he basically bankrolled Bill Clinton's entire political career up through 1992 into the presidency. And they had this, like, strange, like, buddy-buddy relationship Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Jackson Stevens is like uh, involved in, uh, yeah, he's he's caught up in all this like BCCI shit and also with like Burt Lance. Um, so like the shady Dixie Democrat wing, you know, he seems to like kind of have wrapped around his finger. Yeah. So I guess Abadi met Lance in Washington, D.C. and they, they got along uh, very famously. Uh, this is after Lance was like had to resign. They had a strong mutual attraction. 
uh, false prophet says. Lance wanted to get out of his financial mess by selling his National Bank of Georgia stock and refinancing his debts. Abadi wanted to expand to the U.S. Perhaps even more important to Abadi was the chance to use Lance as a bridge to the American political world. Shortly after the meeting in Washington, Abadi hired Lance as a business consultant to spot investment opportunities for BCCI. So... Lance, uh, I guess unsurprisingly, recommended an ailing bank that was the target of a great deal of regulatory scrutiny, the National Bank of Georgia, his bank, basically. Uh, NBG's woes did not seem to bother Abadi, and he was soon involved in serious discussions with Lance and his investment banker friend, Jackson Stevens. Despite Abadi's enthusiasm, there was little chance that a takeover by BCCI would be approved by U.S. bank regulators, but Abadi quickly found a solution. He arranged for NBG to be purchased by Gaith Rashad Faron, a Saudi Arabian tycoon and BCCI client who was reputed to be one of the richest men in the world. So, okay, Gaith Faron for a second, interesting guy to focus on. When Faron appeared in the American scene in the 70s, the only other well-known Saudi businessman was Adnan Khashoggi, the flamboyant arms mm-hmm. dealer who had been implicated in the Lockheed bribery scandal a few years earlier and would figure in the Iran-Contra affair of the 80s. In his well-tailored suits and Van Dyke beard, Faron appeared to be less vulgar than Khashoggi. Faron's aides pointed out discreetly that their boss had a PhD from the Harvard Business School, a not very subtle reminder that Khashoggi was a college dropout. Faron's Harvard degree was actually an MBA, but few people bothered to check. Former associates explained that Ferron favored the title doctor because it was used by men like Henry Kissinger and Armand Hammer, although they, of course, had earned their degrees. He liked to show off his art collection, which I guess was fraudulent, <laughs> um, <laughs> but he claimed it was like priceless. He uh, he owed a great deal to friends in high places. His father, like Khashoggi's, had been a pers- personal physician and top advisor to the late King Faisal of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Faron's flagship company, Saudi Research and Development Corporation, had been launched in 1966 in partnership with two of King Faisal's sons, Prince Abdullah and Prince Mohammed. Faron later brought them out. Over the years, Faron made a fortune by acting as a middleman on behalf of foreign companies doing business in Saudi Arabia. And he eventually emerged as one of Abadi's closest associates, serving as a bridge to other important Saudis, including his partner in the Jeddah Hotel project, Kamal Adam, who is a brother-in-law of King Faisal's, as well as the head of Saudi Arabia's intelligence agency. Several of these Saudi contacts became BCCI shareholders, enhancing the credibility of the bank. Uh, Faron invested in it. In, in, for a time, he was one of the biggest single shareholders, as did Adham and Adham's nephew, Prince Turkey bin Faisal al-Saud. Considered the brightest of King Faisal's seven sons, Prince Turkey became Deputy Director General of Intelligence in 1973 at the age of 26. He succeeded Adham as the country's intelligence chief in 1977. Now, that's a big name right there, Prince Turkey bin Faisal, right? Mm-hmm. He pops up all over the fucking place. He was the long, like long sitting uh, intelligence chief of Saudi Arabia. And didn't he resign like right before 9-11 or something like that? Like either right before or right after? Let me just double check that. But it was probably like him and Prince Bandar bin Sultan were definitely the two most prominent Saudi princes to have like really deep American connections. Mm-hmm. Yes, he resigned. Uh, he resigned his position on September first, <laughs> yeah. two thousand one. September first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And Oof. also, I remember uh, talk, speaking of Adnan Khashoggi, not Hashoggi, as like CNN mm-hmm. started saying post 2018. His nephew, Adnan Khashoggi's nephew, the murder, the martyr journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, used to work for Prince Turkey, and they were like close friends. So mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet that, like, given who his uncle and his like sort of mentor was, that Jamal Khashoggi wasn't just like a blogger who got like uh, chopped to pieces because he like talked about how women can't drive or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I, guess I think the, the Khashoggi's real name has a, has a cough. So actually we say Khashoggi probably for ease when really it is uh, huh? Khashoggi. Well, like it's like, it's like Khalid, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. I mean, not I, really get like it. I get K it. K is more like Kareem. I get it, but also like fuck the media for doing that because like they, I know what they were up to. I it's just like changing. Honestly, it's just like changing all the Ukraine shit to be like Kiev or like oh Zelensky has two Y's or like we're gonna spell Kolomoisky's name differently now so that like all the SEO gets fucked up. But in this, it's more like an audio SEO where like nobody, maybe somebody's memory would be jogged if you heard that name Khashoggi, which is pretty specific, you know, on the news like twenty four seven for like six months straight. But the fact is that like that. I think that was an op because <laughs> nobody brought up like Trump's friendship with Adnan Khashoggi the entire time. Like everyone just pretended that never happened. And it's like, and so the people that allegedly hate Trump the most, you know, and would find mm-hmm. any reason to like, you know, basically tar him or call him corrupt. It's like, remember when you bought Adnan Khashoggi's yacht and went on David Letterman in 1987 and talked about like what a cool guy he is. You know, like, uh, like right when you were buying Resorts International and all mm. that shit. You know, come on, dog. Like, uh, nobody brought that up. So I think what I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to saying Khashoggi, even though it's like wrong, because mm-hmm. we need lest we forget the connection. Yeah. Well, I guess okay. if they talked about Jamal uh, Khashoggi, one would expect uh, Khashoggi. I mean, it is very hard to pronounce in, in English. It's one of the harder. Uh, you know, you don't usually see those two consonants back to back a lot of the time. No, you um, don't. It, it, is that even an Arab name? I guess it no, no, it's be, Turkish. But... Oh, that makes yeah, sense. Because yeah, his, no his father so was the doctor of uh, King uh, King Ibn Saud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's that's um, why he had such a privileged position, much like Pharaoh's, uh, or I think it was Pharaoh's family. And then the Adham, the uh, intelligence chief who's another person that was like suspected to have huge CIA ties. And he got very like involved in sort of BCCI and like American investment type stuff. And this guy's like a former intelligence chief of Saudi Arabia that everyone just kind of pretended like, eh, what I know he's just like a private businessman now. Like what's the big deal, you know? But I, I think it, it once again goes to show that maybe especially when, the inroads to like the Saudis were, were really established in like the late seventies that that's where like the U S intelligence links also really kicked up. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I think something worth kind of mentioning, like kind of that I think is sort of relative to this. I mean, there's this interesting uh, article uh, again from, from WAPO, like around the time that sort of talks about an interesting aspect of this. I mean, I guess it's talking about, uh, 18, uh, sorry, 1948, 1948, 1984. Oh, 1984. Uh, they're talking about 1984, but, you know, it's an interesting aspect where, like, the CIA had made a report on BCCI that had been, like, ignored, 
So there's kind of like this interesting back and forth between like the regulatory authorities and the CIA about like who dropped the ball and, you know, the CIA pointing to this memo that they had written. And I think this brings up like one of the linchpins around this whole thing, which to me doesn't quite add up, but is like repeated and upheld by everyone. Like, you know, whether they're like critical of what happened or if they're just going along with the mainstream narrative, like it's a very weird thing. So they write, uh, the placement of a quotation in a September 6th article on the BCCI affair made it appear as if uh, Robert J. Stanky, oh, this is a correction, I guess they issued. A former Treasury Department official was commenting on the entire contents of a 1986 CIA report when he said the report's allegations were too sketchy to act on. Stanky's comments retained only to the report's brief references to BCCI's alleged money laundering activities and not to assertions that BCCI had gained control of Washington's first American bank shares, published 92191. Uh, so they retracted an aspect of this that you'll hear. But anyway, so uh, the pro- article proper goes, if the Bank of Credit and Commerce International scandal took official Washington by surprise this summer, the U.S. government has mostly itself to blame. Uh, this article is from 1991. As early in 19, as 1984, federal agencies received warning signals that the unorthodox overseas bank was laundering drug money and had legally illegally acquired control of a DC bank that federal regulators had sought to keep out of BCCI's hands. But no enforcement action took place until 1988, and it did not expose the pervasive fraud that regulators now allege. BCCI continued to operate in the United States until regulators here and abroad seized most of the bank's operations on July 5th the beneficiary of bureaucratic tunnel vision, some officials' ignorance of American banking laws, and a widespread failure to make full use of information already at the government's disposal, according to current and former government officials. As one of history's biggest banking scandals broke this summer, some media reports focus on the Central Intelligence Agency, suggesting that it knew of BCCI's illegal activities but ignored them so that it could continue collecting intelligence from inside the bank. But Heard that one before. A, a reconstruction of events based on more than 50 interviews shows that the CIA passed along to several other agencies key intelligence information about BCCI, though it did fail to reach one key regulatory agency. The agencies that got the information did not react aggressively, and the reports did not reach all the offices that would have been interested. So the CIA tried to warn everyone, but they just didn't listen. So In the meantime, law enforcement officials around the country were picking up evidence of BCCI's illegal activities in isolated criminal cases, but they did not recognize that the incidents reflected a wider pattern. And this is the part, the key part that doesn't add up at all. Only by happenstance, in fact, did BCCI become ensnared in a U.S. Customs Service investigation in Tampa that led to a 1988 indictment of the bank on money laundering charges. Terrible, said former Commissioner of Customs William Von Rabb, grading the government's overall performance on BCCI. The system worked in the worst possible way. So this is like what happened, according to them, according to the, the CIA, that is. Several times during the interview, this official had said the CIA information had been handled by the Treasury during the first Reagan term. Reagan's second term began on January 20th, 1985. Baker was confirmed as Treasury Secretary on January 29th, uh, 1985. So he ignored information. This official said that he spoke with Mulholland about what happened to the CIA report. And Mulholland told him he sent it uh, on to the office of the Comptroller of the Currency. He named the man that Mulholland said had received the report. That man, however, said in an interview did not recall seeing any report about BCCI. Former Comptroller uh, C. Todd Conover, who left in May 1985, said he did not recall seeing anything on BCCI. Neither did his successor, Robert L. Clark, a spokesman said. One official commenting about everyone's reluctance to acknowledge handling the CIA report said, it's like the commercial for the breakfast cereal. 
give it to him, give it to him, give it to him, Mickey, or give it to Mickey. I don't know what that even means. But anyway, I guess they were passing it around, like not wanting to acknowledge it is the idea. But so anyway, several months after the 1960, uh, 1986 CIA report, I don't know, I have this apparently now, a stroke of bad luck brought our customs agents inside BCCI's offices in Tampa and made BCCI a top priority of U.S. criminal investigators. So this is a stroke of luck, according to them. The agent, Robert Mazur, had spent months posing as a money launderer. One of his customers, a Colombian drug trafficker, had suggested Mazur could launder more money if he opened an account at an international bank with a branch in Panama. In the early weeks of 1987, Mazur passed a big gold-lettered BCCI sign on a street in downtown Tampa and chose the bank. I drove by and just happened to see the sign. So that's how all of this unfolded, was allegedly that's this how guy they just- got caught. Yeah, this guy happened to see the sign. So oh, that's I bet, something. I bet they have like operations in Panama. Like, yeah, well, what? they are an international bank. It does say international on the sign. Bullshit. So, I yeah. Bullshit. Uh, that's so, not yeah, like conveniently right at the turning point when, you know, in the early 1980s, when it was about time to like wrap things up. <laughs> With BCCI, uh, well, particularly the late eighties when, like, yeah. the Iran Contra thing had just been exposed. Because didn't didn't Operation Sea yeah. Chase really start kicking off around like eighty seven? Mm, yeah, that's when it kind of happens. Uh, yeah. It was in nineteen eighty six that um, you know, like, they started like you know the the scheme based in the Tampa office of BCCI. Mm, uh, so right so, around the time it like really blew up and like went public when that plane yeah. got shot down. But before that, you know, I think, uh, and I, I maybe you could say by like the end of 1986, like Gorbachev was in. Who knows if there's any mm-hmm. tie-ins with that? But you yeah, know, the tide was turning in this Cold War confrontation, and uh, the Afghanistan operation was kind of had a momentum of its own. So maybe mm-hmm. uh, it was time uh, just to place that. So like when. When Reagan and Casey and everybody get in, well, right before that even, right, like I think in, was it 1978, General Zia takes over in Pakistan, right, in a coup. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly, like Washington did kind of its like abusive patron kind of posture in like Mm -hmm. that it suspended aid to Islamabad. In mm-hmm. 1979, um, partially because of the nuclear weapons program. But then after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Carter turned the spigot back on. And the yeah. Reagan administration was even more genu- generous, seeking a chance to fight the Soviet evil empire by aiding Pakistan as well as the Mujahideen rebels in Afghanistan. And all this yeah, he was like the Zia He was regime. like Zelensky uh, in <laughs> a way. Because, yeah. because, yeah, they like didn't like him. But then, you know... But then something, uh, but then the Russian yeah. bear roared, exactly. and they had yeah. to rush to his side. So mm-hmm. yeah, and they had to yeah. fund all these, you know, the, the fanatical death squads. Um, mm-hmm. But then, okay, so then together with the Pakistani government, um, or actually, one source said that uh, that many times when the aid package was approved of in the Congress, Abadi would take credit with General Zia, who added that the BCCI chief helped the Pakistani foreign minister arrange meetings with U.S. officials. So he was very involved in this. But, you know, um, the book does point out that even though the Afghan operation, you know, uh, got way less attention than the Contra war, they basically did receive like more than $2 billion. Um, You know, and of course, I think we've discussed before, it's been described 
As America's biggest covert action program since World War II, the war in Afghanistan led to an extraordinary 10-year partnership between the Pakistani military, its intelligence agency, the ISI, the Saudi intelligence agency, and the CIA. Zia built the ISI into his chosen covert operations unit. Working with the ISI, Prince Turkey bin Faisal, the Saudi intelligence chief and a BCCI shareholder, distributed more than $1 billion in cash to Afghan guerrillas during the late 1980s. Uh, Abadi and several of his close associates were conduits for information and intelligence. In addition, BCCI handled transfers of funds through its Pakistani branches and acted as a collection agency for war materiel and even for the Mujahideen's pack animals, according to internal documents. BCCI was also extremely useful when the CIA, the National Security Council, or other agencies wanted to supply arms discreetly to allies like the Mujahideen. The Afghan operation was so extensive that the CIA station in Islamabad was one of the biggest in the world, according to Bob Woodward. He added the CIA's William Casey, quote, had the closest relationship with Zia of any member of the Reagan administration. Casey also became close to one of Zia's top advisors, Aga Hassan Abadi. Abadi helped arrange Casey's sojourns in Islamabad and met with the CIA director during visits to Washington, according to former BCCI officials and sources in Washington. Typically, Abadi would stay at a luxury hotel and Casey would go to his suite. The two men, who met intermittently over a three-year period, would spend hours talking about the war in Afghanistan, the Iran-Contra arms trades, Pakistani politics, and the situation in the Persian Gulf. Casey was quick to realize that Abadi and his network could be useful to U.S. intelligence around the world, whereas men like Adham and Prince Turkey were primarily of value in the Middle East. Quote, what Abadi had in his hand was magic, something Kamal Adham, or even Prince Turkey, didn't have, said a former BCCI official. Abadi had branches and banks in at least 50 third world countries. The BCCI people in all these countries were on a first name basis with the prime ministers, presidents, finance ministers, and elite in those countries, and their wives and mistresses. Casey could ask Abadi whether a country's leader had, quote, a girlfriend or a foreign currency account. The BCCI official continued, Abadi could say, we'll tell you how much he's salted abroad and how much money he gives to his girlfriend. The BCCI network was also valuable as a mechanism for exerting influence abroad, thanks to the political connections Abadi and his minions had made over the years. The, bank net, the bank's network could also serve as a discrete channel for financial operations, including bribes, money laundering, and the financing of arms deals. As Abadi's relationship with Casey blossomed, BCCI became increasingly important to the CIA. The agency opened several accounts at BCCI, as well as at its satellite in the capital, First American. The CIA used more than 40 accounts at First American for routine business. I mean, uh, then, you know, throughout his tenure at the CIA, Casey bristled at Congress's attempts to impose controls on covert operations. We talked about this in our Contra 5 victory, mostly around Central America. So in, in an effort to circumvent Congress, Casey, together with NSC officials, cooked up a secret plan that Oliver North, a Marine colonel and NSC aide, later called, quote, a neat idea. BCCI was intimately involved. And that's where, you know, Iran -Con the Iran-Contra enterprise basically uh, came out of. So, you know, BCCI was uh, very critical to, like, everything Bill, Clay Bill Casey was doing and his, like, covert victory ops, you know, throughout the 1980s, like, jetting mm -hmm. around, the, around the world and... Uh, getting this big alliance to uh, flood Afghanistan with guns and chaos and launder yeah. a shitload of money. I mean, so, so it got wrapped up in all that stuff. And then it's in like in the late 80s when 
things are starting to get exposed. And also yeah. Casey dies like in, I believe it was 87, right before he's supposed to testify. He had a big stroke and then he dies. And interesting. I, yeah. That weirdly happened to a lot of people involved in this. Uh, it really Clifford, did. Abadie himself like had a heart attack mysteriously and hmm. then like just, you know, stayed in Pakistan like after that and died not too long after. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think uh, I forget. Very conspicuous. And of course, I, apparently, I actually didn't realize this. I don't know if this is like miswritten. I forget which of these books uh, uh, mentioned it, but it mentioned that like the executive assistant of Bill Casey during Iran-Contra was Robert Gates, who like mm. would go on to basically be nom. I, I think, yeah, he was... He almost became uh, director of the CIA. He was nominated in 19, early 1987 after Casey died, but he withdrew his name after it became clear the Senate would reject the nomination due to controversy about his role in Iran-Contra. And then Bush, when Bush got into the White House, he nominated him again, and then it was confirmed by the Senate. And, you know, Robert Gates, like, I mean, God, like the guy who was even like George W. Bush and Obama's uh, Secretary of Defense, right? But mm -hmm. apparently he was like at Bill. He was the guy who probably like had the most connections to uh, Bill Casey and like knew where the bodies were buried. Yeah, that's interesting. With, yeah. You know, and he never get like I remember when Obama kept him. Everyone's like, wow, like he what a team of rivals. Like he's so responsible. You know what I mean? <laughs> like like mm -hmm. nobody was bringing up like, wait, this is like one of the fucking like Iran Contra kingpins almost like a guy who was like all up in there, probably just as much as like Oliver North and everything and it's it's interesting to watch what he ends up like advocating for like later down the road post iran contra but anyways the official line from the cia given in testimony before a senate subcommittee last year by then acting cia director richard kerr was that the cia did not make great use of bcci bcci was not a major banking mechanism used by the agency for the support of covert foreign intelligence operations it was used on an extremely limited basis for legal banking transactions. But an investigation by NBC News over the last five months, including interviews with former BCCI insiders, prosecutors, and foreign intelligence sources, has found that there is much, much more to the relationship between BCCI and the CIA than anyone in government has been willing to admit. An important part of the CIA-BCCI intrigue involves what BCCI sources say were secret meetings here at the Madison Hotel in Washington in one of the $2,000 a night presidential suites on the top floor of the hotel. According to BCCI sources, it was here that the head of the bank, Aga Hassan Abadi, met secretly for at least three years with CIA Director Casey. Sources say the secret meetings took place every few months and the agenda involved Casey's two most important covert projects, secret Iran-Contra arms shipments and the army of the Afghan rebels. BCCI became an off-book operation of the CIA all around the world. The CIA told us it could not find any records in its files of a Casey connection to BCCI, but our sources say that's not surprising. Very few knew what Casey was up to with BCCI. Officials at the White House knew that BCCI was involved in a wide range of criminal activity as early as 1981. 
But what the White House knew was considered top secret, and no one has been willing to talk about it until now. Very early on in 1981, after I joined the staff of the National Security Council, I began to see the, the name of BCCI on a number of different documents. Norman Bailey was a senior intelligence analyst in the Reagan White House. And in an interview with Mark Hosenball of NBC News, Bailey laid out some of what he says the White House knew BCCI was doing. Terrorist activities, gun running, uh, guerrilla movements, um, uh, technology uh, transfer uh, violations, uh, embargo and boycott violations, things of that kind. When these uh, documents are, uh, are unclassified or released, uh, the involvement in BC, of BCCI and all these activities will be reinforced. Uh, it was quite a record. But what Bailey didn't know at the time was that the director of the CIA, William Casey, had his own secret BCCI agenda, using the corrupt bank for covert activities. Bailey now says that explains why Others at the White House were in no hurry to go after BCCI. It's public knowledge now that the uh, Central Intelligence Agency used uh, the BCCI for certain of its payments. And uh, obviously doing that uh, would make them less than totally favorable to uh, blowing the uh, BCCI cover. And the question that comes up again and again is why did the Justice Department appear to be dragging its feet in investigating BCCI? With us in Washington now is Assistant Attorney General Robert Mueller. Mr. Mueller, can you answer this question so many viewers must have? Why the long delay? Well, let me start off by putting this in context, if I, I could, from the perspective of uh, United States law enforcement. Uh, we were the first entity around the world uh, to bring a prosecution against BCCI, and that is the result of the wedding which you saw, uh, which led to uh, the prosecution in 1988. And the strategy then, because BCCI was not a United States bank, was to convict the individuals, the high-level managers that we had indicted in Florida, and get them to uh, agree to cooperate, give them an incentive to cooperate. You were going after the money, the drug launderers, in effect. We were going after the drug launderers, and uh, but the way you open up something like BCCI is to get those individuals who have some familiarity with the inner workings to cooperate and cooperate truthfully. Yes, but and sir, we were and we were successful in doing that. And but some of the nay, sir, uh, some of your own agents who were working as undercover agents have testified before Congress that they wanted to go beyond the drug launderers, but they couldn't get to first base with the Justice Department. That there was I, I don't know. That is not their testimony. That is not their testimony at all. And what we did, and you, well, let me let me go back to the segment that you showed of Shinoy. Nazir Shinoy is one of those persons whom you showed in an earlier segment as an individual and information as to BCCI. He's in those red robes because he was prosecuted by the Justice Department as an, and has agreed to cooperate. And the evidence relating to the acquisition of the United States banks came as a result, in large part, of the cooperation resulting from our prosecutions in, 1990, in 1988. But, sir, you still, we have heard again from other people, including those who worked at the White House and the National Security Council, we know about the CIA information, that there was an awareness, there was knowledge that something wrong was being done, which comes back to the question, which you really haven't answered in the specific way, why was there this delay of several years, certainly including after 1988, until 1990-91, before real steps were taken against the principles. Well, I, would, I think anybody who believes that there was delay attributable to something else and does not understand how a process works, 
is is uh, is naive in in a case of a complicated investigation such as this, where the records and the testimony is generally overseas. It takes a long while to break an individual to have them cooperate and cooperate truthfully. And in this case, there was a, a con concurrence of events that enabled us in 1990 uh, and 1991 to bring the prosecutions we have had. So do you want to talk about the downfall of BCCI, this kind of possible controlled demo operation, Sea Chase? Yeah, yeah. Sea Chase, you know, that is like really what uh, Abidala Jean's argument pivots around, is like the susness of Sea Chase. So just to like go back through the timeline that's sort of laid out, like even in that WAPO article about it, he says like, it talks about like, you know, wh who knew what then? And it weirdly all does kind of start like around, yeah, like the early eighties is the earliest. In the early eighties, the National Security Council claims that they saw intelligence reports that BCCI is involved in illegal transfers of sensitive technology, embargo violations and financing of guerrilla movements, according to a former NSC official. So that's the first kind of account of like, you know, anyone, that's the first time there's any kind of like percolation of any of this, although it's kind of retroactive, like that, you know, no one really knows about this. It's just like someone recalling that they've heard about it. So it's starting to kind of bubble up. That's the earliest. And then in the, like much later in the eighties, you know, there's kind of like a little bit of activity, you know, about BCCI prior to that, like, uh, the IRS was contacted by a former BCCI courier who tells of possible legal activities, including large amounts of cash being flown in and out of the U.S. Uh, an IRS officer recommends targeting BCCI with an undercover operation, but officials refuse her request in 1984. You know, so then uh, in part at the request of other agencies, the CIA begins focusing on BCCI and its efforts to learn more about the money laundering by drug dealers and terrorists. So then, like coincidentally. <laughs> apparently, according to this article itself and to pretty much everyone who's reported on this, that guy, Robert Mazur, like who's in the process of a sting operation on a, you know, South American drug cartel, happens to choose BCCI as, uh, you know, the bank that will he'll work with. By the way, just to uh, uh, pinpoint the date exactly, I'm seeing here in from BCCI to ISI, uh, he says that on February 11th, 1987, that was the day when Mazur or Mazur uh, walked into the BCCI Tampa office. So that would have been after mm -hmm. the public, I think it was October 86 when Eugene Hasenfus was shot down in Nicaragua and, and it like properly blew up. So we're talking about like maybe like four or five months after Iran-Contra is made public and the mm -hmm. scandals really, I forget exactly when Casey died actually hold on let me just like look at the bill casey death he died in may of 87 but i forget when he had the stroke but like this is you know yeah like three months before bill casey dies uh mm -hmm. this thing gets started okay go on so yeah and yeah then he just you know that was the day when he happened to walk into that office in the riverside plaza building so jean says uh on april 7th 1987 
Missouri met Mora, who is, you know, one of the people who he's uh, trying to uh, implicate in all of this, uh, you know, uh, part of his sort of sting operation, like not his sting operation on BCCI that's, you know, kind of being speculated by John, but just like, you know, what we, what he did admit uh, he was doing, uh, which is, you know, uh, related to money laundering and, and drug dealing. So he met Mora and told him bluntly that in the future, business will be routed through BCCI in Panama, which would eventually increase the profits. Mazer bragged at the stage at the entrapment process that he had been doing business with the B- uh, at the stage of the entrapment process that he had been doing business with BCCI quote unquote for a long time and exaggerated his relationship with it, claiming that previously the bank had opened account for him all over the world. Mora listed listened and accepted the offer, since his earnings had already increased tenfold without much effort. However, he suggested opening the account with a Swiss bank rather than the BCCI. But Mazur was adamant about his proposal. This suggests that entrapment of the BCCI was planned from the beginning and it was no accidental choice, as Mazur had claimed. Mm-hmm. At a lunch on April 8th, 1987, Agent Mazur introduced Mora to Argudo, manager of the BCCI, and talk, of you know, the uh, Latin branch. American branch, yeah, Tampa branch, um, and talked at length about money laundering. Agent Abreu described the occasion as one of a social nature. This is at odds with previous meetings between Mazur and Mora. However, it is important to note that, unlike in the case of other defendants with whom all meetings were duly taped, the U.S. government claimed not to have taped these meetings with Argudo, U.S. citizen, or David Miller, BCCI employee and U.S. citizen. This suggests the possibility these two employees of the BCCI may have worked for the U.S. government as inside sources in roles similar to that of Rita Rosansky at the Florida National Bank. Additionally, in 1987, midway through Operation Sea Chase, both Argudo and Miller left the BCCI and transferred to new jobs with other American banks. Even though they were involved in the conspiracy as much as other employees of the BCCI, neither of them was indicted nor charged for what they allegedly said or did. This is a further indication that they may have had an ongoing working relationship with the U.S. government. Mazur wanted another piece in place. He contacted a Panama City lawyer, Miguel Sanchez, and created another fake Panamanian company, IDC International. Coupled with his new relationship with the BCCI, the company would put him in a position to move funds offshore directly. On August 13th, 1987, David Miller helped Mazur in opening an IDC operational account in Panama. No funds from legal proceeds had been wired through the BCCI as yet, nor had this been proposed to any BCCI employee. So, I mean, not to say, like, this guy is very, like, partial to, like, the BCCI, like, as, like, you know, not necessarily being tainted by the stuff prior to sea chase i'm yeah. sure that like they were mm-hmm. like all like you know i mean he does kind of acknowledge that there were like issues like in the management structure or whatever but he doesn't like you know uh or that there even was some corruption but you know i yeah. think that there's probably something i think as we talked about like uh you know a little bit earlier like there's probably a middle ground between like outlaw bank and their perspective um you know the perspective of the author of bd and this perspective, which is like, you know, very uh, positive towards uh, BCCI. But, you yeah, know, I definitely. think that the basic thesis of uh, the idea of the entrapment uh, does kind of hold up um, or the idea that it was kind of utilized up to a point and then, yeah, controlled demos, as you said. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it is interesting how like a lot of the stuff that like these uh, the prosecution was ultimately based on was like kind of stuff that this guy like you know he recorded or like you know like just little statements that people made like even the whole idea of like the ownership of first american by bcci 
like a lot of the investigation that was done of that, like at the time anyway, didn't come up with like really anything conclusive, but it was because people said that they owned, like that you said that BCCI, like on tape, you know, and prior, like, you know, recorded conversations that BCCI owned First American, that, you know, this uh, thing was uh, alleged. But even, I think Mazur even at one point claimed to his, uh, you know, clients that he owned, that he owned part of BCCI. Like he claimed that like he owned part of the bank in order to kind of entice them to bank there. Another, yeah, an interesting thing that like, you know, he would often talk about like uh, Lee Iacocca, and Lee Iacocca, yeah. Yeah, he would just constantly mention uh, how he had clients, like basically to the people handling his accounts at BCCI, he would say like, you know, some of my clients, uh, they're like uh, Lee Iacocca with cars, except they do, like they deal with drugs. And like the people managing <laughs> his accounts would be like, um, you know, it's not our responsibility, like what your clients do or whatever. You know, it kind of sounded a little bit like a James O'Keefe type thing. Like, yeah, I was going to say this sounds like, like Project whatever. Veritas. Like, yeah, exactly. Kind of it was like a Project Veritas type thing where they're like, um, you know, well, we don't really care like what you do or so. Like, yeah. And then yeah, that was like, yeah. got him. Making you know, leading like they, comments basically to yeah. be like, wow, oh, I'm so glad you guys are like laundering all my drug money for me. And it's like, uh, you know. Yeah, he, exactly. He and it's like kind of uh, giving off major Fed vibes. Yeah, yeah. He, that's but, exactly what he was. So yeah. And acknowledge like somehow like sort of like, you know, brushing that off or not immediately being like, sir, get out of this bank at once. <laughs> like, you know, or something like that. Uh that basically makes you totally legally liable, <laughs> like under some law. Like, you know, having knowledge of handling any kind of legal funds. Yeah. Is yeah, that's the end of you. But you know, that, that that that's very like that kind of is entrapment to a certain degree. Also, like it every bank kind of looks the other way. I think, like you said earlier, like this a lot of this behavior is like not so much unique to BCCI. In no, terms of not. looking the other way when wealthy clients show up with dubious amounts of money. Yeah, or making these weird, like, offhand remarks, like, you know, what does that even mean? Like, is he telling the truth? Like, you know... Well, are I mean, you gonna... he mentions as part of the operation, like, uh, it says, on October 28th, 1987, for the first time, drug-derived funds were sent to the BCCI. Agent Abreu collected $750,000 from drug dealers in Detroit, and U.S. Customs Aircraft flew the cash in two suitcases to Tampa, where it was deposited into the Florida National Bank. A corresponding amount was wired to IDC Panama for distribution by checks without the BCCI's knowledge that the funds were illegal. But just like, wait, hold up. So uh, an agent went and collected Seventy seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars from quote drug dealers in Detroit, and then U.S. Customs aircraft flew the cash to Tampa. Like that's like a pretty good sum of money. It's not like they didn't pull it out of like an evidence locker and be like, yeah. all right, take this seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. They went. He collected it from Detroit drug dealers. So like, did he do that as an undercover agent? Is and in, I mean, in which case, no. Like, like they were making a ton of drug money that they pocketed. And used I as mean, part of this. That's Wait. what I mean. I, I mean, he doesn't have footnotes in this book, but I do wonder. Like, not. was that yeah. was that publicly announced? That oh, no, that's he actually what he does. Did? He has endnotes, not okay, footnotes, end but endnotes. Yeah. But I mean, that's like that. That sounds like one way or another. You're actually involved in the drug trade, but like you're, it's ostensibly for this purpose of like framing other corrupt people. But like you're collecting profits from 
like yeah. street gangs, basically, which is the whole, isn't that kind of the whole crux of like the Gary Webb, Dark Alliance, like idea of flooding the streets with crack cocaine in the 80s and using it to raise money for all kinds of other uh, sketchy bullshit. I think even though this gets painted as like this badass undercover operation to catch a corrupt bank, like yeah. this feels more like it's just in line with, it's like a different branch of like the CIA bringing the cocaine in itself. And then finding all kinds of uses for it because just as you know there's one way to do it is like you illegally make money off of it but then you can also like throw it on other people like when reagan went on tv and said oh that like i caught the sandinistas trafficking cocaine it's like you can just project your crimes onto other entities and make it seem like it's all their fault and then control demo them and then you're like you're upholding law and order you know you didn't do anything wrong so yeah, it's just it's very this is a very curious investigation basically. Yeah. I mean, he sums it up well, uh, Abdullah John does, I think, in the uh, the sort of final chapter of the book, which is titled Time for Pakistani Generals to Tell the Truth, um which Damn kind straight. of, you know, is the best time where it weaves together uh the two aspects of this book, the two case studies like the uh BCCI and the ISI and how they're both kind of victims of this entrapment and the sort of uh, 9-11 truth component uh, that he brings in. He says, Operation 9-11 was a carefully planned intelligence operation, much like the smaller Operation Sea Chase to entrap the BCCI. The 9-11 hijackers were agents and double agents and probably unaware of the scope of the operation. They, along with the ISI, were instruments of a carefully planned international intelligence operation, which was designed to entrap Osama bin Laden and allow for war on Afghanistan. The evidence confirms that the ISI was used as a local arm of the CIA in South Asia. After all, the ISI owes its existence to the CIA. Now the truth is becoming known, what lies ahead for the ISI in Pakistan will depend on when Washington feels the time is right to turn Pakistan into another Iraq and Afghanistan. The ISI's role in 9-11 has already forced Pakistan to pay a price in the form of permanent U.S. forces in Pakistan and the agreement of continued provision of support to the U.S. war of aggression on Afghanistan. History shows that the U.S. government has previously attempted to use ISI crimes to press Pakistani governments into submission. The Washington Post published a report by John Ward and Kamran Khan in a September 12, 1994 edition in an attempt to implicate the Pakistani army in drug trafficking. The news published the same report in October 1994. Another attempt was made through Kamran Khan in the April 4, 1999 edition of the news. More recently, the ISI faced severe criticism at a U.S. Senate briefing on the drug trade, a crime in which the CIA has been involved since 1960. This hearing of the U.S. Senate was just another threat in the vast trap being laid for the Pakistani army for the next several years. Um, and then this is the sort of part where he describes how the entrapment works uh, in both cases. The entrapment process adopted by the U.S. agencies is very simple. They plan and commit a crime of serious magnitude. They achieve their strategic objective behind the crime. At the same time, they involve the victim in just a fraction of the overall criminal plan. The unknown, unintended cooperation in the crime is then later used to punish the victim. This is exactly how the BCCI was trapped. Irrefutable evidence, as discussed in the earlier sections of this book, demonstrates that the CIA funded the operation against the BCCI with drug money earned through the organized selling of drugs to its own employees. According to the court transcripts of the BCCI case, by late 1987, the agents had passed approximately 2.2 million derived from Don Chepe's proceeds through the IDC account and had split the eight, uh, sorry, seven to eight percent commission profit with Mora 
and Don Chepe's representative, Javier Ospina, without telling uh, any BCCI officers about drugs. Yet it was the BCCI that paid the price. So again, you know, his, uh, he has sort of partisan uh, bias towards the BCCI, which I'm sure was involved in like all sorts of uh, sus shit, probably yeah, on par yeah. with a lot of banks. But I think that the general uh, argument holds up. Like it's a two-pronged scheme where you use it yeah. as a vessel to commit a massive crime and then they take the fall and then you Absolutely. hit two birds with one stone. Absolutely. I think it's here with Manuel Noriega. Um as I'll get to in the near future, I think I think Charles Taylor fits into this category quite cleanly uh, as somebody who you get him to do dirty shit for you. And then you turn around and go, oh, what a brutal thug, warlord, evil, we have to overthrow you kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like they they implicate you in it. And yeah, I'll just I'll just read from like page 25. He gives a very concise explanation of the specific plan in Operation Sea Chase like what it really was doing in this instance. He says that with BCCI's aforementioned background as a rising third world institution, U.S. Customs, the CIA, and the FBI devised an elaborate plan titled Operation Sea Chase to topple the giant. And Agent Robert Mazur, also introduced as Robert Musella to the BCCI, spearheaded the operation. He was supported by confidential informers, including Alvaro Uribe, also were involved also involved were money launderers Jimmy Mora and Gonzalo Mora from Medellin, Colombia. The plan was to enlarge the minor money laundering business of Gonzalo Mora through extensive logistical support from the US government. Undercover agents would collect drug money in cash on the streets of the United States, launder them through major US cooperating banks, and return the profit from the sale proceeds of the drugs to the owners in Colombia. The following evidence from court transcripts of BCCI officials indicted in the U.S. shows that once the efficiency and track record of the Mora organization was proven, this minor money laundering operation would rise to the big league and entice the kingpins of the drug trade to deal with Mora. This would ultimately allow the U.S. government to direct the money laundering operation toward BCCI, the primary target. So it's like they they set up a whole fake like money laundering apparatus supported by the U S government and built up its credibility with these, you know, uh, these sort of cocaine quote unquote cartel kingpins in Colombia, right. Who, who, you know, set up their whole operation with like Nazi help and like Klaus Barbie and shit, but that's, that's for another day. And then got all the flows of this drug money, like flowing, in a kind of uh, through a set of, I guess, like entities that they controlled and then take that and kind of steer it. Because then that that not only becomes a successful way to launder your illegal covert ops money, but then it becomes a weapon that you can aim. Okay, we could take all this money and then we could aim it at a bank that we want to take out in this case bcci yeah. and then use it and then and then it becomes all bcci's fault and everything else gets obscured that came before yeah. it. like the u.s <laughs> built this entire infrastructure in the first place and then went and like caught one person like cleaning some money with it basically who it does sound like while they were involved in all kinds of like covert ops in particular the kind of iran contra cocaine money which it seems like that's basically kind of what they got like that that's essentially what they got caught for right at the end of the day in, mm-hmm. in, in sea chase that was they were it seems like 
maybe they were less directly involved in that or less involved than this like entire operation would assert. Yeah. And it was the U.S. like pawning off their responsibility I think, onto the yeah, scapegoat. Right. I think they definitely like, you know, I'm sure that it's not true that there was no corruption involved because, I mean, really, the Islamic prescription on usury is correct and it's fundamentally corrupt to bank at all. So, like, you know, it really uh, does inevitably lead to uh it's a, definitely a gateway to a lot of corruption and i'm sure like you know even Banking more so the original gateway drug yeah it is the original gateway drug i mean look look what happened you know so i'm sure that they were involved in a lot of like uh corruption but the way that it was spun as like these uh you know for instance i do want to go back to outlaw bank like uh in like uh, more extensively in a little bit but there's towards the end of the book he has this very sort of uh, uh interesting uh part where, uh, let me see if I can just flip to it, uh, like in a relatively quick way here on archive, if like it's going to cooperate with me at all. Going to have to refresh. Uh, all right. Seems to, oh, I got to borrow again. There we go. So uh, at this point in the book, Beatty weaves this interesting sort of thought experiment where he talks about, uh, you know, like uh, the idea of like agency X or whatever. So he says, uh, the astonishing depth of the official knowledge would not become apparent until much later. Between 1979 and 1981, federal law enforcement agencies received more than 700 tips about the bank's criminal enterprises, according to Congressman Charles Schumer's final 1992 I, report for the House. Yeah. I forgot that he was the one who did it. Yeah, uh-huh. him, John Kerry, uh, and Daddy Mueller were the kind mm-hmm. of the big people. Hmm. Taken together, <laughs> Mueller lied. Yeah, taken yep, together, the tips covered uh, almost all of BCCI's lines of business, from promoting political unrest in Pakistan to the smuggling of arms to Syria, Iran, and Libya. Political unrest in Pakistan, you know, to financing terrorist groups and organized crime in the United States and Italy. Concluded Schumer. At the very least, there is absolutely nobody putting together all the pieces. You could make a credible case that somebody told them not to do anything about BCCI. That somebody remains unnamed. William Casey had something to do with the immunity BCCI enjoyed, but Casey died in early 1987. General Zia had contributed to Abadie's immunity, but Zia was killed in August 1988 as the Soviets were preparing their retreat from Afghanistan. Abadie's usefulness as a hidden ally of American intelligence went away with the Soviet troops. And before the year ended, the charismatic Abadie himself dropped out of sight sidelined by a heart attack again like the interesting series of uh anyway, but, yeah <laughs> yeah the mantle of protection that seemed to shield bcci's american operations remained in place until the bank's uh rapidly dwindling assets made it impossible to paper over the frauds any longer in this part it was because BC- I, yeah i don't know if that's the causality is quite right there but anyway in part this is because bcci though it was virtually imploding after 1988 remained a necessary middleman in clandestine weapons deals and other foreign initiatives. BCCI wasn't finished in 1988, Condor said. They were uh, only they were the only way we could talk to certain folks, and they were the only vehicle available for some transactions. Who else could wire something together involving Saudi Arabia, China, Israel, and the U.S.? So then he's saying, uh, he goes on and says, to see how BCCI's links to the U.S. intelligence compromise law enforcement, one need only ask two questions. If an agency of the government, call it Agency X, had run a serious probe of BCCI at any given point in time, what would it have been likely to find? And what would have been the implications of making the findings public? 
1982, when BCCI took over the Financial General after a three-year struggle, Agency X would have found it intriguing that the CIA neglected to tell the banking regulators who some of the purchases really were. Based on what was known, there were only two possibilities. Either one of the most influential banks in Washington had just fallen into the hands of foreign intelligence chieftains of Saudi Arabia, or an international bank of ill repute had been allowed to buy into the American banking system illegally over the objections of the Federal Reserve. Even a rudimentary background check on such shareholders as Kamal Adham and A.R. Khalil would have revealed those intelligence connections. Mm -hmm. Had investors from Agency X looked at BCCI in 1984 and 1985, they would have discovered the bank's burgeoning relationship with the CIA. Abadie had by then become an ally in William Casey's crusade against the evil empire. One Senator Pauler Hawkins visited uh, Pakistan in 1984 and upset apple carts by confronting General Zia with her knowledge about a Pakistani bank laundering drug money out of Miami and the Cayman Islands. Both the State Department and the Justice Department intervened with dazzling speed. The reasons, in retrospect, are obvious. Had the senator been helped with her probe instead of being warned off, she might have uncovered the massive money laundering being run by BCCI through the Cayman's Miami money laundering being, uh, sorry, uh, she might have uncovered, yeah, through the uh, Cayman's Miami Tampa nexus that was being run through there. That would have led her to Panama and Manuel Noriega, who happened to be on the CIA payroll at the time. But the Afghan civil war was heating up. And Abadie had bent U.S. foreign policy to his own ends. And it's really like, oh, his own he, ends. Yeah, he had bent U.S. foreign policy to his ends. Is incredible. Uh, I mean, yeah, like, William yeah. Casey. Uh, that real real William Casey erasure going on in that book. Uh, um, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> all right, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, real world anti communist league erasure. Yes. Um, Speaking of um, that, like one of the people that was involved in BCCI, I think I mentioned uh, to you, uh, who was on the, I think he was on the board of Global 2000, along with Jimmy Carter and Abadi. Um, this guy's name was, um, oh my God, Royishi. I want to say Royishi Sasakawa, but hold on. Yeah, yes, right. Royishi yeah. Sasakawa. And if you just look at him, like, he is the biggest sus lord. He was heavily involved in the World Anti-Communist League. He was like a fanatical Japanese fascist, was accused of war crimes, uh, became incredibly wealthy after the war. And he said that Mussolini was, quote, the perfect fascist and dictator um, after <laughs> after meeting him. Um, hmm. okay, but yeah, so, yeah. so somebody like that, you know, like uh, hanging out with Sigmund Rhee, Chiang Kai-shek, President Sukarno, uh, he said once, quote, I am the world's richest fascist. <laughs> he supported the Unification Church um, and all kinds of other fun things like that. And so, got Jimmy Carter, like, I know you're, he likes talking to everybody, but like, he did end up in some weird places in the 80s um, hanging out there. But, anyways, yeah, um, yeah just so, the idea, the okay. idea that, like, yeah, like, the, this is just the uh, Abadi, like, manipulating everybody instead of, I mean, who who came out on top at the end of all of this? Did Abadi yeah, come out on top? No. Like, come on. <laughs> he certainly uh, did not. I mean, he says, like, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, a bunch of hilarious things. Like, uh, this is another thing I flagged. Uh, 
says, 1979 was a watershed year for Abadie. It was the year Zia finally hanged the troublesome uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, thereby clearing the way for Abadie's unimpeded access to the top of the Pakistani political establishment. The Middle East was about to ignite in war and revolution, and Abadie and his bank would become major, if hidden, players in a historical restructuring of power and alliances in the Islamic world. In January, America's greatest non-Jewish ally of the Middle East, the Shah, fled Iran. No, leaving his country to Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini and his Revolutionary Council. Later, that spring, the Camp David Accords, fostered by President Carter to bring peace to the Middle East and uh, luster to his faltering administration, fell apart as Saudi Arabia severed diplomatic ties with Egypt, joining the general Arab boycott of the Sadat regime. Crown Prince Fahd ibn uh, Abdulaziz had uh, decided that if the United States couldn't save the Shah, it couldn't save Saudi Arabia from the fundamentalists either. I don't know if that was his reasoning, but anyway. In the aftermath of Cap David, Crown Prince Fahd concluded an agreement with General Zia to finance two battalions of Pakistani commandos to be on permanent standby in the case of trouble in the Gulf. In Iraq, Saddam Hussein seized power. That was Abadi's agenda, obviously. Uh, and in November uh, 4th, CIA, yeah, the Iranian revolutionaries uh, stormed the American embassy at Tehran and seized set six, 66 hostages, an event that would ultimately remove Jimmy Carter from the White House and usher in Ronald Reagan. And this, you know, uh, strengthened Abadi's position and his profits were all enhanced. And by... Uh, Everything that he was doing, you know, he was receiving oil from the revolutionary government, blah, blah, blah. It was all part of his yeah, plan. All part of his plan. He's the Muslim sort. He was the mastermind. Yeah, he's very convenient. <laughs> I think that like one of the best examples of like the sort of uh, the role of Abadie as like a very convenient figure in all of this is uh, this one last anecdote that I definitely want to read during this episode uh, from this book. Uh, because it's truly amazing and introduces a very interesting character. You know, you said... Uh, that maybe the sort of Nazi element uh, would not be uh, maybe mentioned here, but I think perhaps uh, perhaps it will be because uh, there is this one uh, sort of uh, informant that Beatty has in this book uh, who sticks out as being uh, interesting. Uh, his name is, uh, he goes by a pseudonym, he's unidentified, but he's a, a high German weapons dealer uh named heinrich okay he's a yeah he's described okay, as he's a, a weapons a dealer yes a weapons dealer who apparently you know works with uh with bcci he like you know reaches out to bd and uh meets with him yeah here we go so uh he like you know he's meeting with a bunch of different informants at this one time this kind of connects also to the sort of uh controlled demo type uh you know allegations here this is kind of about that one uh the uh, the plane being downed or you know mysteriously crashing uh that sort of i don't know if they mentioned that in uh false profits at all uh but it's a big uh, which plane thinking the one in georgia not in georgia it was uh let me see where it actually did uh it crash it's interesting yeah there was apparently a group that called themselves like uh the like families for uh truth about this this plane crash yeah families for truth about gander incorporated it was a uh plane carrying 248 american soldiers returning from the middle east in gander newfoundland in december uh 1985 doesn't give a specific date oh wow um i hadn't heard about this one before yeah it's interesting so anyway he meets with two people one is called gene wheaton they're both weapons dealers okay uh one is uh called uh Gene Wheaton and the other one is this Gene. guy Heinrich. 
I don't know if that's his real name. Uh, you know, Heinrich definitely has a pseudonym. Gene Wheaton's off-the-wall contribution centered on the former military intelligence officer's investigations into the real cause of the plash, crash of a plane carrying uh, 248 American soldiers returning, you know, from uh, the Middle East and Gander, Newfoundland. Even though Islamic jihad terrorists had quickly boasted they blew up the jet chartered from Arrow Air, a CIA-connected company, both the U.S. and Canadian governments insisted the plane had plunged to the ground because of ice on the wings. There was abundant evidence of the contrary. Wheaton, servicing, serving as a private investigator for the Families for the Truth About Gander, Incorporated, an organization formed by relatives of most of the soldiers who perished in the crash, believed that, an, that Iranian terrorists blew up the plane out of anger after they received a shipment of defective Hawk missile parts from the United States. I don't know if that's the truth, but, uh, you know, maybe this plane was crashed. But anyway... That missile equipment was part of the then-secret arms for hostages deal authorized by the White House and orchestrated by CIA Chief William Casey and Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Wheaton thought the government refused to acknowledge the real reason for the disaster because it would have threatened the ongoing clandestine negotiations. The reporter took notes as Wheaton, uh, the reporter being the actual writer of the book, again, it's all in the third person, uh, sitting in the brown leather chair, described the federal investigations of the crash site. The scene was a mess, uh, Wheaton explained. Even though the government later said there was no explosives aboard, firefighters heard small arms popping all over the place and saw debris flying into the air from delayed explosions. There were six heavy wooden crates aboard that probably contained contraband arms that had been loaded into the jet's cargo in Cairo without military customs clearance. Beatty was reminded of the heavy wooden crates aboard the CIA plane of Karachi, as described by Sam Masri, and dropped his eyes to his notes so his sudden interest wouldn't show. The BCCI link was coming. The military got those crates out of there fast. Since they were never on the manifest, they were never referred to again. And neither was the money that was taken out. Bingo. What money? Wheaton didn't hesitate. Nobody except the people who removed it knows how much there was. But a 32-kilo Army-issued duffel bag stuffed with U.S. currency was found in the wreckage. How many hundred-dollar bills does it take to fill a 70-pound duffel? Two men in civilian clothes, men that the military personnel on the site believed to be from the CIA, took custody of the money and departed immediately after that. Gene, how public is that information about the money? It figures to, uh, to be millions. Has that ever been reported in the press? Beattie asked. Not to my knowledge, and I've read just about everything on the subject. Wheaton sounded a bit defensive, automatically assuming the reporter was questioning what he had said. But there is no dispute about the fact that it was found. There are references in the records, but you have to know where to look. There are transcripts. No problem. I was just wondering. Then Heinrich comes to the picture. Heinrich, who was close to high-level people in BCCI since they financed many of his sub-Rosa deals, had also recently mentioned the Newfoundland crash. Heinrich didn't sell surplus military rifles for a living. He did multi-million dollar deals with the governments of second and third world countries looking for tanks, sophisticated fighter planes, and tactical missiles. And he worked with the top echelon of the BCCI apparatus, who specialized in weapons procurement and financing. He had been describing a peculiar conversation with some of his BCCI contacts. Beatty remembered every word of Heinrich's offhand comment. They were complaining about losing a lot of money in the Gander crash. It was BCCI money, and they thought it was being, perhaps, stolen from them. Beatty ended the session with Wheaton as soon as he could and called Heinrich at the hotel. The bespectacled German, uh, neatly dressed, was sitting in the leather chair, the only decent chair in the room, really, looking for Muse and a little worn. He looked, Beatty thought, like an accountant who had lived a very hard life. Uh, ex not No, surely it was a very hard life of being now. Uh, eh, well, the reporter aborted a sharp. Uh, Heinrich reminded him of a Tessie University professor who expected students to remember every precious word he uttered. 
I don't have your kind of mind, Heinrich. You're pretty unusual, you know. There aren't many people who can retain as many details as you do. If I don't write it down, I forget it, especially when I don't understand what I'm being told. And a lot of what you told me when we first met was going over my head. Placated, the arms dealer relented slightly. He was not so smart that he couldn't be appealed to on the basis of his superior intellect. After years of interviewing everyone from Captain's Ministry to Mafia Hitman, Beatty was still amazed by how far a little flattery could take him, blah, 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 blah. You know, the plane had money that Abadie, uh, money that the bank had provided U.S. intelligence for covert operations. The money was being used by the American military. I have no idea what for. You don't ask these kinds of questions of these people. That was not my business there. And I was just listening to them talk. But money of this sort is always cash, unlimited cash sometimes. There is never any paperwork. So there's never real accountability. And that means, does it not, that it does not always go for the uses that it was intended. Heinrich smiled, one of those humorless smiles that made him look older. One of the bank men, perhaps I should call him an associate of the bank men, was a little angry about this money. He believed it was being uh, appropriated by some of the special forces soldiers. Someone else thought perhaps it was being diverted to another operation. Who could tell? I only know that the subject of the gander crash came up and these people talked about BCCI money going down with it. So, you know, that's uh, so some of somebody the... sabotaged a plane full of like military soldiers, uh, yes. full of U.S. soldiers to crash it, kill everybody and steal like tens of millions of dollars of like black money. Yes. Uh, according to Heinrich, you know, it was all the BCCI. They were the paymasters. He says, uh, Jonathan, I have already told you. It's not that you don't remember. There's something wrong with your mind. You didn't believe me. Abadie was close to Bill Casey. They met many times. BCCI financed operations. BCCI brokered weapons and supplies. BCCI acted as a paymaster. You yourself told me that American operatives in Weisbaden were using BCCI credit cards. You want to know so, something? What? Okay. Well, first of all, remind me who Durrani is. Um, I'm not sure, actually. Uh, did I just mention him? Uh, Durrani, hold on. Let me go back just a little bit. Da, 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 da. I think I might have an educated guess as to who Heinrich is. Oh, who is it? Well, hold on. First of all, the, the, the who, who the fuck is Durrani? God damn it. I hate it when books don't write the first name. <laughs> um, Arif Durrani. Okay, so mm -hmm. he was uh, so that he got caught up in Iran Contra, right? Um, Arif mm -hmm. Durrani was a Pakistani arms dealer who went to U.S. federal prison for illegally providing Hawk anti-aircraft missile parts to Iran. Yeah, so he he used BCCI. He yeah he was, would sell arms like in connection with them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So yeah. He. Uh, uh, yeah, he he did a lot of deals using uh, BCCI to finance the export of weapons to Iran, and was like evading the arms embargo, arms embargoes, and things like that. But the interesting thing that I found in the Outlaw Bank is it just says here uh, Beatty's interest in Durrani was focused on BCCI. Sources had said Durrani was part of the BCCI group that he knew Abadi personally, and that his operations were financed by the bank. Durrani was also close to Mustafa Gokal, the director of Abadi's mysterious shipping company. Beatty was also intrigued by one uncontested fact that had emerged at Durrani's trial. Here we go. Until his arrest, Durrani had been the managing director of Marex, a California arms firm that was a main supplier of the Israelis. Now, I'm pretty sure... Marex. Marex came up before. 
and I'm going to be bringing it up soon in a Liberian context, but you can find an article about it on Wikispooks. It was basically, uh, it was an arms dealing company founded in 1963 in Switzerland by um, a gentleman named Gerhard Mertens and mm. uh, with assistance from one of his old World War II comrades, Otto Scorzani. And, um, Interesting. Yeah, uh, he was a like Nazi commando in World War II, <laughs> uh, Gerhard uh, Mertens. Interesting. And uh, yeah, he served under Otto Scorzani. He was one of the soldiers that did that like daredevil, like hang gliding operation to rescue Benito Mussolini. Mm. I think he, maybe he was a Hauschirmführer. <laughs> I forget his exact rank. Mm. Um, and he was a guy who basically became like an international CIA operative after World War II, working kind of with uh, Otto Scorzani and the kind of international Nazi underground. Now, he was a little old. He was still he, he Merricks. I've read elsewhere. Merricks was involved in certain transactions with Iran Contra, and I would not be surprised in the slightest if they had like overlap uh, or financial interest with BCCI. Now he was a little old, so I don't think that um, that maybe Gerhard is this. He would have been dead by the time this book came out. I think he died in like 1993. But as it happens, he had a son named Helmut. He died in 1998, and this probably happened before 1993. Yes, but uh, but he still was very uh-oh. old, and he was getting out of the business, and yeah. he has a son named Helmut. Helmut hmm. Heinrich? Isn't mm, it, isn't it yeah. often, you know, you choose a pseudonym, maybe you have the same first letter as your real name? Mm. And he actually, I remember a few years ago looking into him, he lives in Northern Virginia. He's a CIA and NSA contractor uh, and a business, international businessman to this day. And he inherited some aspect of his father's arms dealing, international arms dealing business. And now he's just like a rich guy who lives in like, Mm. like basically, uh, you know, I forget rest in Virginia, wherever the fuck. And, uh, and so, but, and also like, I I think, um, I think it was the book shadow world by Andrew Feinstein, uh, that talked about how helmet Mertens was like probably in his thirties in the 1980s. He was like a young up and coming guy. And he also was dispatched, to to like uh, work out some Iran Contra arms shipments in the eighties, so he was already working for his father's company and planning on taking over um, the business. And I think actually he had a brother too. I'm forgetting his name right now, um, but both the brothers, uh, the Mertens brothers, like took over the business in the nineties, like around the time their father died. And I don't know. I mean, could could be him, could be not. But it would be interesting. The only mark against it would be that. It very seems like these guys are so good at hiding in the shadows. I don't know why he would talk to an author and be a confidential source. Well, that's source what's so weird. And unless... he came out, you know, as he writes, Heinrich had come at, in out of the cold voluntarily and quite early in the game and was one of the decidedly non-establishment sources for a small piece in the cover story. It was weird, you know? A little was, weird and suspicious. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe some more of this because that's only really the tip of the iceberg in terms of Heinrich content, really. Okay. Okay. Because let's, he let's starts what, to let, see a bunch else, of. With this in mind, let's hear what else yeah. Heinrich has to so, say. So, uh, you know, even uh, Beatty, who is, uh, you know, not immune to being a bit sensationalist himself, writes uh, The BCCI empire that Heinrich described was too outrageously dramatic to be believed. It sounded like a movie about an international conspiracy. All the German would say was that Aga Hassan Abedi was an evil man, and the way things were going, the full story of BCCI was going to be buried. 
So, yeah, and he says, uh, there is no longer any doubt this mysterious man who liked to quote uh, Telhad de Chardin and Nishi was a major player in the Eastern European weapons market and enjoyed a close business relationship with the BCCI. He was the one who brought up uh, the idea that, uh, you know, Abadie had been brokering technology to the Soviets. Uh, he says, hmm. the supercomputer deal ran through India about 15 months ago. It was E.S. Uh, uh, Vijay Kumar uh, who handled it. I don't remember uh, whether this was the son or the father. It was the father who handled the deal. That's Mala Export Corporation, uh, 31 Kothari Road, Madras, India. They have offices in London and Abu Dhabi, and they have a lot of high technology stuff with BCCI in Russia. Interesting. Because well, remember in Contra 5, we talked about how a huge plank of Bill Casey's uh, strategy to undermine the USSR was to stop third-party countries, like non-aligned countries, from mm-hmm. giving, t- transferring, or selling certain types of technology. A lot of that really had to do with like Nord Stream 1, right? Yeah. Which is still kind of relevant to this day. Like they were fighting Nord Stream 1 the way we ended up kind of fighting Nord Stream 2. Uh, like it was a kind of very similar mentality and a lot, of, but he got down to the point of like, oh, certain turbine parts or like certain computer chips. Like we need to make sure not only that we don't give it to them, but like they can't go anywhere on the global market and buy it. And that would definitely include places like Pakistan, India, you know, uh, yeah, these sort of non-aligned countries. Right. He even said, you know, it is important. Heinrich said, it is important this information be known. The American intelligence agents who have worked with BCCI will not talk to you because they believe it will be disloyal. Even those who think it has gone too far. If they knew that Abadie was working with the Soviets, it would put things in a different light for them. They might talk to you then. Um, so was he and- trying to kind of gin up this idea that that dun dun dun, like BCCI was helping the Soviets? It well. <laughs> Speaking of uh, gin up, <laughs> Heinrich is the source of probably the most like wild and wacky before, you know, just to uh, lead, like, you know, read uh, everything of his testimony or his, his statements in this book that I that I want to read. You know, he's the source of uh, one of the most, uh, you know, wild uh, Abadie uh, stories in this whole book. Yeah. At some point, Beatty is talking uh, to Heinrich. It says, uh, BD uh, called him from Connecticut until his computer had been found. He was exultant. He had been worried that if it wasn't found, Heinrich might bolt for a hole and never surface again. He wouldn't have blamed him. BD was in Hartford to talk with the imprisoned Arif Durrani, a Pakistani arms dealer convicted of selling to Iran parts for the U.S.-designed Hawk missile system. BCCI was the banker. BD and an ABC, and an ABC News team were going to interview Durrani at 9 in the morning. Into the third round of six-packs, the conversation took a sharp right turn into Catholic metaphysics. Gwyn was not a Catholic, but he had read the Revelation of St. John. He soon realized that the high German Catholics weapons dealer and Terry Hayes, the Irish Catholic cop from Brooklyn, were talking seriously about the Antichrist, specifically about Aga Hassan Abadi as the Antichrist. Whoa. Heinrich, the pragmatic international weapons dealer, was convinced that Abadi's power and influence were manifestations of pure evil. You know, I have heard some strange things Abadie was supposed to be able to do, said Gwyn, struggling to keep up with the dialectic. The BCCI employees were quoted describing a sort of trick Abadie would do at training seminars. He would hold a piece of paper in his hand and tell them to concentrate on an ink spot in the middle of it, making it grow and shrink in size. As it turned out, there was no ink spot, but he made them believe it. Everyone considered this in its new context. 
They had all heard stories about Abadie's mesmerizing aura. Aura, sorry. Then Heinrich said, I'll tell you something. I've never told anyone uh, this before. I saw him do something. I was in Lahore. He had some sort of office there. And the day I was visiting, he happened to be in. So my client suggested we meet him. Just a brief hello. When we walked up, the door to his office opened by itself. We went in and I turned, expecting to see whoever opened the door. But the only person in the room was Abadie, seated at his desk. When we left, the door closed silently by itself. I don't think it was anything mechanical. I've never seen anything like it. What the fuck? He and Hayes then began to discuss the nature of evil and God's purpose on Earth. The detective continued to go on alert every time rune service showed up. Gwyn was thinking about the implications of Heinrich's story, but not about whether Abadie could or could not do some spooky things. This was the first time Heinrich had indicated that he knew or had even met Abadie. Both Beattie and John Moscow believed the German knew a great deal more about BCCI than he had revealed so far, and perhaps they were right. They had all been reserving judgment on a couple of things Heinrich had told them about high-level bribes BCCI had paid and his assertions about BCCI's involvement in narcotics trafficking. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, he was apparently... Yikes. Yeah. He had yeah. nefarious... Uh... Yeah, the various superpowers. I mean, it's interesting because it kind of does overlap with sort of the, uh, you know, uh, shake uh, role that he had, like in the institution itself, you know, kind of like in the in the way that he conceived it as like a mystical institution uh, in there. Uh, yeah. You know, like, you know, all of his like his, new agey yeah. kind of motivational uh, kind of. Uh, so it does dressing. kind of. Yeah, it does kind of converge with how like he might have perceived himself in the institution as this kind of, uh, you know, sheikh or guru figure. But it's interesting that, yeah, Heinrich had a totally different take on it. So I don't know. That he was satanic. Yeah, he was the Antichrist. He's, wow. Yeah, he seemed quite persuaded from from this anyway. Yeah, I don't know. But Interesting. Uh, I think, so well, who knows okay. What this guy is getting at. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to note here that uh, Merrick's AG uh, did once broker the sale of German Air Force fighter jets to <laughs> Pakistan, which were delivered mm. via Iran. And also, uh, I, I did I remember I checked up on Helmut Martins, like not only is an arms trafficker, he runs something called United International Supplies in um, Alexandria, Virginia. Mm. um that was started in 1987 wow okay so he he started his own company he broke off his own company in 87 um and they were caught a few years ago um actually no th this kind com company itself uh, uh played a role in iran contra and they were also uh found to be um thousands of weapons uh that were found in the possession of isis uh <laughs> <laughs> basically um from this mm. company so uh, i mean i think heinrich is helmet martins i'm just throwing yes, it out there i think it's fucking true um yeah it seems but, possible yeah is there any other insane heinrich uh that tales? is the that's the that's the creme de la creme there okay yeah the, uh, the antichrist door opening closing story um, wow okay yeah well okay maybe we'll talk i think but you know as our, our last little segment here um i think maybe we should talk about like the the overall thesis of the from from bcci to isi kind of mm -hmm. thing um yeah or i don't know i mean we've we've kind of made references to it and stuff but this book yeah. is uh, this book is actually a very interesting yeah um breakdown like very like full-throated uh calling out of operation 911 in yeah. a way that it's weird because the first part of the book is about bcci i kept reading it expecting it to like literally tie these two kind of uh events together but he's more just like holding them up as examples 
of kind of how the U.S. operates, like the U.S. deep state kind of operates and Mm -hmm. like see like the ISI is going to get set up for a criminal conspiracy, just like the BCCI got set up, you know, in the late 80s. But I mean, you can't help but notice that a lot of the main players uh, in both, like they're, they're the same people basically involved that were connected to kind of Iran-Contra BCCI shit in the 80s and then were involved in the lead up to what he calls Operation 9-11 in 2001, which mm. he sees as a blatant, like in, like a very complex manipulative entrapment scheme by like the U.S. intelligence services and kind of its allies to uh, to not only, I mean, utilize the ISI to help pull off the operation, but uh, implicate themselves, even if probably like most of the people did not realize that was going to happen. And I think it makes a pretty good case for it. I mean, certainly on the, mm-hmm. the, the realm of, I think something that does usually get blown over sometimes in the whole 9-11, like the, the 9-11 truth universe is the uh this individual general mahmoud ahmed right Mm -hmm. the chief of the isi like uh, up uh, i think from like 1999 to i guess maybe very early 2000 maybe the end of 2001 he was uh, fired by musharraf you know Mm -hmm. who is like in terms of people that have incredibly sus connections to the attacks themselves like literally a money trail leading up to it Mm -hmm. it doesn't get more clear than general ahmed right yeah he was because he wired through a an associate uh he wired to muhammad atta a hundred (laughs) thousand dollars like before the 9-11 attacks Mm -hmm. and so it's like apparently he's a hafiz uh of the quran is the the quran memorized Really? That's, a, that's wow. a point in his favor. Allegedly. Uh allegedly. Yeah. yeah. But I mean this this goes pretty much into how I mean it's sort of unclear like what how much he really really knew, but some of the meetings that were had and once again we circle right around to like the Americans involved in like the the first Americans if you will. You know, uh, Bob Graham and Porter Goss, who went to Pakistan, right, in, I think, the summer of 2001. Mm-hmm. And they met with, uh, well, they met with, I think, Musharraf. And, but they definitely met with Mahmoud Ahmed and discussed, it was classified. I don't, it wasn't public, so we have no idea what, what they discussed. And then Mahmoud Ahmed went on, like, a week-long visit to Washington, D.C., which I feel like is a, that feels like a little bit abnormal for like a foreign intelligence chief of of a sort of ally to like come Mm -hmm. and hang out in washington for like a week or two but he was having a series of meetings he had a series of pre-9-11 top level meetings in the white house the pentagon the national security council and with cia director george Tenet and mark grossman the undersecretary of state for political affairs like yeah (laughs) what was he meeting about like what was so important before fucking 9-11 that you would and then the morning of 9-11 he was having a breakfast meeting like like literally as the attacks were commencing he was having a breakfast meeting with the with the chairman of the House and the Senate Intelligence Committees, Senator Bob Graham and Representative Porter Goss, who were both 
basically uh, represented Florida. And Porter Goss, as I think, um, I was happy to see him cite Daniel Hopsicker a bunch of times, like in mm-hmm. this part of the book, because uh, yeah. he went, he actually ended up digging up like an old photo which is, I think, the first time anybody confirmed it, of uh, Porter Goss, I think, in Mexico City in the early 60s, hanging out with, like, David Atlee Phillips um, and Barry Seal, among others. Like, all the guys that allegedly maybe were involved, they were definitely involved in Castro assassination campaigns in the early 60s, but might have had something to do with the JFK assassination. So, like, Porter Goss is, like goes back like deep and he's also like a blue blood his family are like the brass kingpins of waterbury connecticut um Mm -hmm. which i know because my dad was born there and they're straight up have been sending their their boys to yale since like before the revolution type of people right Mm -hmm. so he's like he's one of these scary like intelligence fire wasps basically that has served in the CIA clandestinely and then got into politics. And eventually after 9-11 in 2004, George W. Bush made him the CIA director for like two years. Again, it feels like eh, maybe a cleanup operation. But anyway, it's like you couldn't think of two susser individuals. And they're also chairing the fucking House and Senate Intelligence Committees. Like, And then, of course, you remember the, the congressional inquiry into 9-11. Who chaired that afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. The same guys sitting down for breakfast with Mahmoud Ahmed on the morning of 9-11. Yeah. The same guy who wired Muhammad Atta $100,000 and like mm-hmm. had to resign because of it. Like it's not, that's not, that's not contested. Like he did it and got caught and was like, oh shit. Like, you know, yeah. and nothing really happened to him. You know, so I don't know, was he fully in on it or was he about to get set up? It's just so, I don't know. What do you think about like those meetings? It's one thing that I think is interesting uh, that BCCI, or I appreciate about BCCI uh, to ISI, which I think a lot of like 9-11 truth content. I do like the perspective of this book because, you know, it is like a, uh, it's like a third world perspective. You know, it's uh, like, I appreciate it going to bad for Avity in some respects. And I also, I think it's interesting that, you know, uh, the emphasis on, the fact that bin Laden was framed oh, yeah, uh, yeah. is like another interesting aspect of this. And, uh, you know, I've always, it's, it is interesting that like, uh, you know, we don't really know, like, to, like I've, I've, I'm skeptical of like the reports about what was found in bin Laden. I was just compound. thinking about that. Like, his, his but it is interesting that list? he had like a collection of like 9-11 truth books. He had Michael know, like, Rupert's crossing the Rubicon. Yeah. He also yeah, had the I entire mean, church committee report on MK Ultra. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember looking at it the other day. Yeah, yeah. like he he had all. It seems like the weird that they would bangers. like fabricate that. Like you know, I think that there's a lot of like bullshit around the Bin Laden, uh, you know, uh, killing. Uh, at, like oh, general, for sure. But it, yeah. yeah, it is kind of like a weird, conspicuous thing. I don't know. Uh, that they, and remember they that. I mean, the, wasn't the whole outside? like story of that is that like Pakistan was protecting him. Yeah. They were protecting him, but we never did anything about it. Interestingly. Yeah. I remember John Stewart being like, what? (laughs) Pakistan. Like complaining our future president, John Stewart, or the Zelensky Democrat who will save us all. Yeah. Um, Well, I remember, I remember Obama, like interestingly during the primary, he sort of staked out his ground of like, well, you know, uh, if we find a terrorist in Pakistan and, they don't give us approval. Uh, I call in the strike, you know, and yeah, people right. are kind of like, whoa, Obama, too. like kind of yeah, hawkish. Whoa. But, mm. you know, he was a smart he was about smart power, 
you know, smart, yeah, a scalpel, he was, not he was a planning hammer. the uh, he was planning the, the turnaround. He was planning the the ISI entrapment. Um, <laughs> exactly. That we all know is eventually coming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. have seen like the sort of ground being laid uh, in the psyop terrain because wasn't that like the plot of Homeland? Like you know, for a couple seasons that like we the ISI we need to go after them. Like I think it was problem. in the drone season when she was the drone queen because she was fighting <laughs> the, the Hakani network and they, yeah, they had maybe, like weird yeah. ISI ties and mm-hmm. stuff. But once again, it's kind of like, you know, I think the good point this uh, book makes is like also the ISI was kind of built up by the CIA like yeah. from the start. Like it was one mm-hmm. of those kind of like the the DFS in Mexico. It was one of these intelligence agencies that was like they brought in like CIA and US military advisors to basically build this thing from the ground up and they always had like a very tight relationship with them. So the idea that like ISI is just like uh, totally running running rogue, like running off mm-hmm. doing their own thing or like they're going to turn on us one day. Apparently also like I don't know General Hamid Ghul, uh who I think wasn't he the previous ISI chief? before sure. uh, or did he become president at one point i mean cool. uh he was yeah it was uh i think it was mahmoud ahmad who was the yeah mahmoud before. ahmad i forget what general hamid ghoul uh exactly his role but he did say on september 14th 2001 quote bush senior was vice president during that entire campaign and no sooner did he become president on january 20th 1989 than he summoned an interagency intelligence meeting and issued an order among several others to clip the wings of the isi that had been coordinating the entire operation in afghanistan i knew this firsthand as i was dg isi at the time he was the director right yeah he was dg isi yeah. during the afghanistan and soviet war yeah yeah oh yeah i forgot presidency is plain was blown out of the sky <laughs> what what's the official story with president zia uh in terms of his plane being blown out of the sky yeah did they say it was a crash or is it like oh he got shot by a missile i think it wasn't like just like a mysterious crash <laughs> yeah yes i he, think it's like one of those things it's just like oops yeah. the plane. Well, wikipedia says there's uh, conspiracy yeah it's weird theories. how these uh, themes keep coming up like strange plane crashes yeah. you know like uh uh-huh. seems to just, be like a go-to tactic for some people i don't know yeah um, oh you know what the other thing that was really fascinating that i did i wasn't really aware of uh that this book lays out is the daniel pearl murder remember that Mm-hmm. You know, he had, that was a big deal in the after 9-11. This Wall Street Journal journalist um, gets kidnapped in Pakistan and then he gets beheaded, right, on video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And eventually they arrest somebody for it. They arrest uh, Saeed Sheikh, right? Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. Saeed Sheikh apparently was the go-between who actually, like, like Mahmoud Ahmad ordered Saeed Sheikh to transfer the $100,000, like, in his name, basically. Mm-hmm. So this guy yeah. was, like, part of the financing network of the so-called attackers. And then, but then he wasn't, like, prosecuted for that. Instead, a year later, he gets prosecuted for kidnapping Daniel Pearl. And the author here asserts that he actually didn't do the Daniel Pearl murder. He thinks that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed did it. Yes, and he thinks the right. reason but he couldn't he was be killed. sacrificed quite yet. Yeah. No, no. Right. So he yeah, he was convicted as the mastermind and I, I, I assume he was executed. Um uh in fact, yeah, like they the Pakistani police and the FBI rounded up 
10 of Saeed Sheikh's relatives and threatened to harm them unless he turned himself in. Yeah, exactly. It in was, response no, it was to so intense shady. pressure from the U.S. government. Yeah. So it's like they and that maybe they were worried that if he was arrested and put on trial, that he might actually start talking about like some of these networks that were involved in the prep to 9-11. Now, interestingly, I mean, this whole part, honestly, is worth reading. Uh, The ISI held Saeed for a week, but failed to tell Pakistani police or anyone else that they had him. This missing week is the cause of most speculation. The ISI never told Pakistani police any details about this week. Saeed later refused to discuss this week or his connection to the ISI. His refusal to talk was tantamount to admitting that he had been threatened by the ISI. He kept saying, I will not discuss this subject. I do not want my family to be killed. I know people in the government and they know me and my work. Yeah. Okay. Also, he mentions, um, you know, the the group that kidnapped Daniel Pearl and like made demands. I had forgotten about this, but uh, they really they're really something. I just have to. Re- so, so Daniel Pearl was kidnapped while investigating the ISI's connection to different militant groups, um, and apparently. The bizarre demands from Daniel Pearl's kidnappers uh, deepened the suspicion people had that maybe Pearl was getting dangerously close to discovering who planned 9-11. The kidnappers called themselves the National Movement for the Restoration of Pakistani Sovereignty, a previously unheard of group. Their (laughs) demands included the return of U.S.-held Pakistani prisoners and the departure of U.S. journalists from Pakistan. (laughs) Most unusual, they demanded that the United States sell F-16 fighter planes to Pakistan. (laughs) No group had ever shown interest in the (laughs) (laughs) F-16s. What the fuck? The Guardian reported that this demand and the others reflected the desires of Pakistan's military and the ISI to obtain the fighter planes. Uh, On January 29, 2002, it was reported the U.S. intelligence believed the kidnappers to have been connected to the ISI. Some captured kidnappers later claimed that the ISI asset, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was the man who cut Pearl's throat. So I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you must give us like 30 F-16s right now. Yeah. We're revolutionaries. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Just like absolute almost like clown level shit but unfortunately unfortunately for daniel pearl r.i.p to a real one i guess he actually was trying i guess he was being a conspiracy theorist and actually mm-hmm. trying yeah, to figure was. out some of these connections but they had yeah to he kill passed him. the anti-semitic point of no return and he had to go down he did and remember that i mean that all that did is like make americans more bloodthirsty to like invade iraq even though it kind of was like totally different i nothing to do with anything you know just the idea of like they're cutting off our heads like what the fuck like you know these sick muslim maniacs like yeah they're really and in the meantime it's like no nah, we're like murdering journalists who are getting too close to discovering like the real interlocked networks the other thing i i think that the two other things that are mentioned and maybe we can come back to these one day i'm gonna come back in demon forces on the uh 1998 uh embassy bombings that al-qaeda allegedly did that he notes in the book basically the fbi's like uh the the fbi's investigation was like completely frustrated when they went over there to africa and like their supervisors like in the state department or whatever told them like stop you're not going to prosecute anybody like shut the fuck up and on top of that the people accused of it like probably didn't even do it and like osama bin laden probably didn't even order that attack and it was all a big psyop um but the other one was like charlie wilson's war and all that jazz which is very funny. It it would be kind of funny to to circle yeah, back to that, that psyop of a really movie. Hard. Yeah, in this book. Yeah, that would be interesting. I remember seeing that in the theaters. Very. He became so close Fuck. with Israel. Yeah, that movie, the Aaron Sorkin movie, is like 
God, yeah, uh, really probably something to, to witness. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. where they mentioned that William Casey's executive assistant, Robert Gates, was, I don't know, involved. And uh, and also that I think like Charlie Wilson went on like a, a junket trip to Israel and he came back and people called him like the Israeli commando in Congress because he was just yeah. like so gung ho. Well, in his own words, uh, he was like, I'm the Israeli commando. And he said like <laughs> he went to Lebanon and he said, Oh, the yeah. biggest surprise I had was the enthusiasm, the universal enthusiasm with which the Lebanese welcomed the Israeli army. Yes. In every instance, their voices were of relief and appreciation of the Israelis. That's just the way it is. It ain't no other way. All right. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, also, the person who played a key role in having Wilson appointed to the White House Select Committee on Intelligence was none other than Dick Cheney. They actually lay out a kind of interesting dynamic of... Uh, uh, of kind of how like Israel exercised influence in those decades and probably still does in terms mm-hmm. of like the reason that they started going after kind of bribing and like seducing politicians is because the CIA kind of like there's a even though there's obviously close cooperation there's kind of like a little bit more of a distrust a mutual distrust yeah. between the CIA mm-hmm. and Mossad so they can't it's like if they go to see it's like CIA kind of like knows their tricks like as a fellow yeah. intelligence agency whereas if they kind of go around it and win over a bunch of congress people who are pretty easy to buy off then they can sort of exercise their like a certain level of veto power over things they don't like. And then I guess also you could sort of look at what like the Gulf countries did with politicians from like the Carter administration and people in the eighties as kind of copying the Israeli strategy of like, Oh, if we win over all of these like elected officials and butter them up and get them kind of on our side, then we can kind of get our influence in there as well. I think that's kind of what, to some extent, that's what a body was maybe uh, trying to do because a lot of them did look at it as like Israel has super huge clout yeah. in like the U.S. government, and like Arabs have very little clout. But like we have enough leverage, you know, mainly through oil, that we we could get a piece of that action as well. But at the end of the day, like who's who's really playing the tune? Everyone's marching to. Is it the Arabs? Is it Israel? Yeah, exactly. You know, no, not are, at all. Yeah. I think there's a dialectical kind of uh, power relationship going on with some of these things, but at the same time, like who who ends up going yeah, down in flames? Yeah, it's not like totally teleological, where you know the U.S. has like complete control of everything and it's hopeless to resist them in any way, or people don't have like their own agency, and there's only like one factor or anything that happens. But you know, I think it's just the narrative around the BCCI is highly convenient, and a lot of the time. And it overlooks like a huge benefit, which is, you know, like we talked about, it's like since time immemorial, the efforts to undermine the economic independence of the Muslim world, really, and to make sure that, you know, like everything is like the, you know, for the open market or whatever, you know, like uh, that everything's free to be, uh, you know, developed and, you know, that you can't have uh, anything that's, you know, no, no walks, that's, that's a uh, regressive, you know, that's, uh, uh-huh. that's exactly. not progress. That's not progress. You know, it's holding you back. But then once you try to play by their game, you have to be destroyed. I mean, how does he say it? Like if you, if you sup with the devil, you best be 
eating with a long spoon or something. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, that's what, that's what uh, the... Oh, yeah. The if you stop with the devil, use a long spur, spoon. This yeah. proverb was current in the 14th century. Yes. Yeah. So I think Abadi like, didn't yeah. use a long enough spoon, perhaps, with some of the people he, that he got he involved not, with. Yeah. And he really thought that he was one of them. But then he ended up getting just like, like so many people, like, I don't know, like Barry Seal, like Manuel Noriega, so many you know, quote unquote dictator or Pablo Escobar for that matter, you know, uh, people, they will X you out, uh, or, you know, maybe, maybe Zelensky, they will leave you out to dry. They'll leave you, uh, for dead. If not just kill you with a heart attack gun, like when they're sort of done with you, because that diverts suspicion away from them. We never ended up thinking about these like respectable bankers, you know, dealing in, fraud money laundering drugs death prostitution all these things you know there's this like fake line between the legit moral economy powered by the like the all positive protestant work ethic and what scary muslims do with their sharia banks or their something. evil sharia banks yeah yeah their evil sharia banks um, before we close out uh, i just want to mention that uh, uh relative to the crash of uh zeal hawk's uh plane actually the u.s air force sent a helpful team of investigators to help them find out what happened and they concluded that uh it was just wear and tear uh and the plane just crashed but the pakistani investigators concluded that there probably was sabotage <laughs> uh so two different conclusions uh but yeah it's like when steven tolbert's plane uh crashed after he like told firestone that like we got to renegotiate your deal and they sent some helpful americans there uh that privately nobody believed and they were like oh yeah you know it just happens planes full of people that piss off the u.s empire fall out of the sky sometimes what's the big yeah. deal um <laughs> But yeah. All right. We're truly we're truly in like the the endless maze of like French arcs like interlocking into oblivion today. Yeah. But, you know, we dug up more of the contra menace. I think we will be back in not too long with another one. Yeah. For sure. It will be interlocked as always. But until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. <laughs>
and the duplicity of some of uh, our government agencies comes to light. Peter, Peter, let's jump in here, because you're in Washington, sure. you investigate this, do you agree? Yes, I think, Garrett, you've got to remember that here we have BCCI for years controlling the biggest bank holding company in Washington, First American. And, of course, this is a bank that lends money to politicians, to lobbyists, to lawyers, to the most powerful people in the country. There is a tremendous um, unwillingness to uh, open up a lot of what has gone on in Washington. Now, what struck me and perhaps struck many of our viewers uh, this morning is that we heard from Senator Kerry, who's conducting an investigation with the subcommittee, and yet there's no real outcry coming from Congress, certainly not from the administration. And beyond that, there's no real outcry coming from Democrats or Republicans per se. There is this eerie silence. Well, Derek, I think the reason for that is it's a scandal which has negatives for both Republicans and Democrats, whether it's uh, the administration, which seems to have dragged its feet, the Republicans, uh, you have, as you were mentioning earlier, uh, an aide to Johnson Inu who's gone off to, all of a sudden, who went off to work for one of the, the main uh, characters in the scandal. Then you also have the Democrats, whether it's in Georgia or also during the presidency of Jimmy Carter and so on. Jonathan, uh, again, any investigator, you and Peter are both experienced, the journalists and investigators in this, we're looking for key figures. We heard some uh, today, Abadi, of course, and Adam, the former head of Saudi intelligence. Whom do you really keep your eye on? Who is the key figure from the BCCI side? I think, as you mentioned earlier, uh, it's pretty honored the Washington representative for the bank is induced to talk. Uh, the House of Cards in the United States is going to begin to crumble, and several other countries. BCCI employees from uh, the infamous Black Network, the, the group of the bank that did the drug dealing, the arms dealing, the, the, the surreptitious activities of the bank. They had told us about millions of dollars being sent to Sunny Ahmed in Washington to be distributed to this country. Uh, they had bragged that they had had more than 100 officials in the United States on their payroll at one time or another. Now, you talk about this Black Network. Let's, let's follow up on this point. It's been argued that in a way, the drug money launders, other people that are with the funds and money transactions, the arms merchants, they need a bank like BCCI. There is a market demand for it. Is that what you found? Well, not only do the drug dealers need a bank like this, the people moving capital flights, the people avoiding taxation, the people hiding uh, corruption or bribery money, and intelligence agencies from both the Eastern and Western world needed this bank. I suppose if it wouldn't have been BCCI, it would have been somebody else. And Peter, uh, you want to jump in here? Yeah, there's a bank through which you could carry out any kind of transaction you wanted to, and you could do it out of sight. It would not be regulated. It would not be properly overseen. We're talking about some of the BCCI officials who are key players in, in the way talk the whole House of Cards collapses. You need a sense of area here, but whom should we keep our eyes on in terms of possible American players? Again, indictments have not been handed down, but where is the focus of the investigation going? Well, I think in Washington, the focus is moving more and more towards Washington, and also um, the question marks obviously are over the BCCI allies in Washington, their lawyers and lobbyists, Mr. Clifford, Mr. Altman, but also a string of uh, other people from the Washington legal establishment. Oh, let me tell you, talk about the establishment here. You, you're there, as a Jonathan, you go and you talk to somebody, you bring them up on the phone, you want to, you say, let's talk about BCCI. What kind of a response do you give it yet? Now, yes, everyone is trying to distance themselves from uh, BCCI, from uh, the Tainter scandal. 
But what do they tell you? I don't talk with you, they hang up the phone, they try to mislead you. In, in many cases, people who were willing to talk last year or the year before are now not talking. I mean, in some cases, that's for fear of indictment or because their lawyers are advising them not. And then it'll be on the answer from Berkeley and Mr. Hill and Assistant Attorney General uh, Robert Mueller saying that they're pushing ahead of their investigation. Uh, we've heard other uh, signs, we've seen other signs that they were dragging their feet. How do you come down on the justice? Well, I think things are moving along much faster now than they were before, and I think that there are uh, big questions about why nothing was done earlier to look into uh, BCCI's illegal ownership of, of, of banks in this country. Jonathan, do you agree with that assessment of the Justice Department investigation? Well, at the top, the Justice Department continues to insist that it's being a vigorous investigation. I suppose I don't see it as being that vigorous. Uh, there are whole areas in which the Justice Department has not even begun talking to anybody yet. Uh, I think it's quite clear that there are questions that they are would be uncomfortable with the answers. Oh, not pursuing All right, uh, Jonathan, today, uh, stand by and come back with more as we continue our special edition on DCCI. We'll be right back. <laughs> Magazine investigative reporter in Los Angeles, and here with me is Peter Truel of the Wall Street uh, Journal. We're talking about the sensitive aspects of Peter. Uh, we're going to reports about uh, business dealings with some of Bush's children, uh, Bush friends, fundraiser. That's correct. Um, there are several uh, dealings uh, related to the bank which, which come home to the Bush family. The one which has drawn quite a lot of attention is uh, an oil concession that was awarded uh, in Bahrain, um, the island in the Persian Gulf, to um, a company, Carkin Energy, which George W. Bush, the president's eldest son, was a director and a shareholder in. And uh, many uh, uh, big oil companies were very envious of the awarding of this concession and were rather surprised that such a small oil company uh, would get a contract when they had no overseas drilling experience and no offshore drilling experience. But the contract was there, obviously, and they got the award. Yeah. And there's also Charles Hosler, ambassador to Bahrain. What's the story there? Charles Hosler uh, was a big uh, donor to uh, the Bush campaign in 1988. He also has other links. Uh, he, ha he has links to BCCI of the following nature. Uh, he's a, a friend and business associate, to some degree, of Mohammed Hamoud, a mysterious uh, Lebanese businessman who died all of a sudden in April 1990, who um, bought Mr. Clifford and Mr. Altman's uh, shares in First Americans Holding Company at the highest price ever paid. Well, lots of questions here, and Jonathan Beatty in Los Angeles, you add all of this up, and where do you think it's going to come out? Well, our magazine once quoted a, a, uh, a high Justice Department official without giving his name for, for obvious reasons, who said, in the end, uh, they're simply going to slap the wrist of a bunch of Pakistanis get them to take the rap for everybody and hope it all goes away before any real damage is done. Uh, well, that's one assessment. 